Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Wednesday morning, June 22nd, 843 661 0937 is our number. Did the break? Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. <laughs> He's morning. in here a few minutes early this morning, Frio. I mean, he didn't, he didn't just uh, stumble, bumble, fumble in at the last moment. He's here. Well, I found out yesterday. Organized, ready to roll, right? Got a good night's sleep, ready to roll. I don't know about that. Um, what do you mean you don't know about that? <laughs> <laughs> Are you staying up too late watching well, your beloved Braves I, I, play? I didn't watch the end of the games. So I looked it up this morning that they did not win. Okay. The Mets didn't win either. Okay. Uh, Phillies win. Uh, Phillies lost as well. Okay. So the three teams um, hotly contesting the National <laughs> League East Division the same, huh? are, um, all had bad nights, but they've recently played well. Um, the Braves are five and a half games out, I think. The Phillies are, what, seven and a half, eight-ish, somewhere maybe eight and a half games out. Right, Freehold? Okay, good deal. Um, the the crazy story in baseball. Phillies are eight and a half. Okay, eight and a half back. Um, the but the the Mets are playing about six fifty baseball. That's real good. Uh, I think they're forty five and twenty five or somewhere thereabout. But the story of the year to me is the Yankees, fifty and eighteen. Mm-hmm. I mean the absurdity of that record. I mean, is this the fastest a major league baseball team? has gotten to 50 wins. I mean, I don't know the answer to that, but it's hard to believe. There was a year that Sparky Anderson managed the uh, Detroit Tigers, and they took off running out of the gate and went like 38-9 or something crazy like that. They cooled off a bit, but the Yankees are 50-18. and 18. That's not quite 750, but it's real close. And for you folks in Pamplico, just way to get waking up early in the morning. 666 means wins two of three, right? Mm-hmm. 750 means three of four. You just don't do that. I mean, very few teams play 666 baseball, winning two of three, and nobody that I'm aware of has ever played 750 baseball. So the Yankees have won 50 of their first 68 baseball games. Wow. <laughs> um, George Steinbrenner and my father-in-law are celebrating in heaven, I would imagine, knowing <laughs> oh, yeah. how well the Yankees are playing. Uh, but they went out and, I mean, they got big market, a lot of money, you know, went out and got – well, they got Judge and uh, what's the other guy's name? That hits it 50 miles. Yeah, Stanton hits it 100 miles every time he swings. Exit velocity is like uh, a rocket ship taking off from uh, SpaceX. But uh, <laughs> what do you well, – what I mean, it is. I mean, the ball accurate. leaves his bat. Acuna hit one last night and kind of left like <laughs> – You see like that? Yeah, I mean, he just kind of tomahawks it. And, and Chipper Jones was in the crowd, and they, the camera went on him right after. And she was like, okay. okay. That's, I mean, it, but when big leaguers – not in all, but when big leaguers go, whoa, okay. You can tell. Yeah, he no, was they impressed. see that. And Stanton hit one or two. Uh, I don't watch the Yankees, but Sunday night baseball, I have it on kind of preparing for the weeks, the next week's radio. And Stanton hit one one night. I'm watching the Yankees, and I just kind of put my computer down like, I got to see this again. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that would be a replay. Yeah, how fast did that ball leave his bat? Um, real fast. Uh, real fast. I want to say I'm proud of the show yesterday. Um, Freehold even said, man, that was professional. I mean, there were, there were a lot of content there. There's hardly ever any worthwhile content on Wake Up Carolina. Uh, it's but a bit sometimes entertaining. We, we get lucky and it you know just happens. Every now and then, the stars align. Uh, the, the, the gods of politics align. Um, favorable forces work to our advantage. And we have a show of, um, I don't want to say persuasive content, but quality content. And I think yesterday was one of those days um, the esteemed professors were in here at eight, we had kind of a, um, a different sort of conversation about politics and the world of which we all live in. 
and then Ellen Weaver came in at 9.05, and it was an hour's worth of, I, I thought someone who had a pretty good grasp of the issues, someone who had a, uh, a vast understanding of, um, if given the opportunity, what she would try and do with public education in South Carolina. There's an old adage. Uh, we've got several listeners and sponsors of our show that are intimately interested in education in South Carolina, and they were talking about, you know, if Weaver would only say this, or if Weaver would only say that, she would garner the, you know, the support of the teachers. Um, there's an old adage in Republican politics, I told Rev this morning, um, for every teacher's vote you gain, you're probably losing about 10 Republican primary voters. Hmm. So what we get, you know, that's a hard dichotomy. So what's that balance? How do you, how do you figure that and out? And that's what these two candidates are trying to figure out. Um, do you want to win the election of teachers or do you want to win the Republican primary? And that's, um, I'm not saying they're competing forces, but you know, what teachers want, uh, and, and what teachers think they deserve. I don't want to say it's out of sorts with the Republican primary voters, but, but at times they're not principally aligned that they're a little bit conflicted one with another. And, uh, we'll see how that race plays out. Um, Kathy Manus will be with us tomorrow at eight Oh five. Uh, for however long it takes. And then tomorrow night, live and in living color at the Staybridge Suites, we've got a debate. Rev and I were over uh, at a walkthrough yesterday with Mike Page, and um, the hotel's been very responsive to our to our interest and in how we think we need to facilitate and organize this debate. Um, it's not as big a, a, an auditorium or room or venue as the Francis Marion University's Performing Arts Center. Uh, we did the seventh congressional debate there, but um, it'll be a more intimate setting. Uh, I don't want to say combative. I mean, I don't want anything to be combative. Kind of do. It's good for ratings. Um, <laughs> but it, but it'll be a to, debate. Yeah. I mean, we don't want ladies throwing punches or anything. Yeah. Do we? Maybe. Um, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> Just. I mean, it depends on the flow of the the flow of the evening. But um, but, but, but we, we we agreed to make it as intimate a setting as we could to kind of centralize some of the the debate. Remember when we did the um. The state Senate race, and we facilitated a debate, and uh, but it was during COVID, and we had you know social distancing requirements, and we had a single podium, and you had to walk to the podium to give your comments. I would ask the question, and you know Jay Jordan or Mike Rickenbaugh would walk to the podium, give an answer, and um, it, it it's, it's hard to debate. I mean, there there are candidates forums, and then there are debates, and I think tomorrow night is intended to be a debate create contrast between the two candidates. Uh, what do you believe? I, a successful debate to me is when, you know, um, Manus says, no, Miss Weaver, that's not what I said. You know, and Miss Weaver says that is exactly what you said, respectfully, but but a little bit um, creating contrast between what these two candidates believe and stand for. And uh, we hope to swing that, pull that off tomorrow at the Staybridge Suites airtime at 7 o'clock, if I'm not mistaken. We think we'll have one break. At about the bottom of the hour, I got word last night from the Florence GOP we need to be finished by about eight ten, eight fifteen ish, somewhere thereabout. We'll preempt some of the um, obviously some of the late night or early evening coverage. Uh, what's that Levin show on ninety five point three? So we'll preempt some of the uh, some of the Mark Levin show from um, six, excuse me, from seven until about eight ten, eight fifteen, uh, and then we're out of there. But there should be a substantive debate. Uh, we hope it's productive to the uh, to the electorate. It's a it's a very important uh, election. I argue it's the most important election in Republican primaries because we have to address education in South Carolina. We simply do. Um, Carl's exactly right. Republicans paint with a very broad brush. 
education is failing our young people in South Carolina. Um, okay, get a little more specific. Where is it failing? Why is it failing? How is it failing? Um, you've got all these metrics. You've got all these measures. We test to um, certain proficiency scores and proficiency ratings. We got things like basic and proficient and advanced, you know, in some of the uh, education verbiage. But um, but when you look at the the state of education in South Carolina in the collective, I didn't say that you know I'm not painting with I'm not painting everybody with uh, the same brush, but collectively and in the aggregate, we underperform significantly underperform. Now a lot of this is is poverty related, is socioeconomic driven. Uh, we talked a little bit yesterday about the breakdown of the family. Um, on Father's Day, I read this in the National Review. 85% of kids, excuse me, 35% of kids going to public education, um, going to school in the public education system in America today, go from a single parent family, um, 83 or 86, I can't remember the number, either 83 or 86 of the 35% come from a home with no father, um, the fatherless um, student, and, you know, twice as likely to be in uh, trouble, some sort of truancy or discipline issue. Um, about four times as likely to have failing grades, uh, just underperforming uh, on several different factors and fronts. And um, But once again, um, as Weaver said, and I would imagine Manus says, I'm not the superintendent of education that's going to argue if your kid doesn't come from two fam- or a two-parent family, they can't come to this school. Um, that's the fundamental difference in public education and the private sector. We talk a lot about business principles, business notions, and ideas integrating themselves into public education. I think we need to do that. I mean, I think there should be more business applied or the, the mindset of a business person applied to education, but you certainly, um, you certainly can insist that kids come only from two parent households. You kind of take them as they are. What are you smiling about Friol? You kind of take them as they are. What, what are you? <laughs> what is that? Oh, did I? Well, but I get animated when I, when I start, you know. I never did that until Trump did it. And I, I'm a <laughs> Trump it, it was cool. Now it's, it's cool, cool to do the old the old <laughs> thumbs up. I remember one day, uh, my son had too much to drink, and we were somewhere, and I was just on his butt. I mean, there was something that we were to do as a family. He went and played golf with his buddies. He's twenty. I would imagine 25 at the time. He goes and plays golf at about 1 o'clock Saturday afternoon with his buddies, knowing that we have a particular um, family gathering and commitment we've made late Saturday evening. So I am ripping into him. I mean, I am just letting him hold it, and he gives me the old thumbs up, like, attaboy, Dad. And it was all I could do to not Uh tear him into a million pieces. I have never been (laughs) as bothered by the old thumbs up. And it's glazing his eyes like, yeah, you know, and I'm like, I mean, I wanted apologies. I want, I, I blew it. You know what I mean? Now that came the next day, but in that state of inebriation, he was not too um, respectful of my, of my opinion at the time. Now I know I'm the only one that deals with, with family issues. I know you conservatives out there in, in Republican land, you've got all of your affairs in order. I mean, you never deal with any of the imperfections that the unwashed like I do. Well, maybe that's me. Maybe that's the reason I'm such a MAGA guy, such an America first guy. I am completely 
and totally unwashed when it comes to those sorts of things. But when Frio said, I've never seen you do the thumbs up, all I can see is my son, you know, across the yard giving me the old thumbs up. I ran across that yard like a, a golden retriever going after a tennis ball. And, and about three quarters of the way there, I think he was like, oh, crap. I mean, th- th- this is not typical, you know. <laughs> you know. <laughs> anyway, yes. and then, uh, as I said, now my family can go from Camelot to Cops back to Camelot, from Cops to Camelot back to Cops in about um in about a nanosecond. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. One more thing about is our the, number the debate for tomorrow night. It is open to the public, so we are putting together uh, chairs to accommodate some audience members. So while there is room, you know, as, as long as there's room, whatever you say. While supplies last, I guess. So we're uh, not first selling come, tickets. First come, first serve. No. Okay. Uh, no, no ability to get tickets or anything ahead of time. But if you're interested in seeing it in person at the Staybridge Suites in their meeting areas, uh, then you can come over there. I think, you know, try to get there in plenty of time to be in, seated, and, and uh, because we go on the air and everything starts promptly at 7. The one thing we've done, and I'll, I'll, this is a little bit self-congratulatory, not just for me, but for all of us here at Community Broadcasters, we're not the big market. I mean, we're not. I mean, the, the biggest markets, I mean, Ref can talk about radio. I'm talking about Republican voters. I mean, the two biggest markets in South Carolina are Greenville and Horry County. I mean, it's indisputable. I mean, there, there are more Republican voters in the Greenville market and in the Horry County market than there are anywhere. You got a lot in Beaufort. You got a lot in York. You got a lot in Lexington. I mean, they're hot pockets. Um, that's a delicacy. They're hot pockets <laughs> in certain places around the state. Um, but we're not one. But we pulled together a 7th Congressional Republican primary debate in a nationally, um, kind of a nationally noted election. And I think this is the first debate we've had amongst the two candidates, you know, in the runoff for the superintendent of education. And and I'm just, we're kind of, um, you know, we talked about underperforming and overperforming. We're kind of overperforming. And it's hard for me to believe that somebody who does what we do in Greenville or in Ore or in Lexington, or in York County, are not, are not doing what we're doing. And I can explain to you why. Because it gets a little bit complicated. Mm-hmm. I mean, it gets a little bit, you know, I mean, there's a lot of work involved in this. You, you got to kind of, um, you got to push candidates to agree to this. You got to hold their feet to the fire. You got to work with uh, these campaigns, managers, and, and consultants who are so full of themselves. Um, so you got to kind of kiss their ring a bit to get them to agree, uh, because they wonder if you're up to something. No, we're not up to anything other than allowing the voters to hear from the candidates. And I think the superintendent of education race is significant and important enough that the public um, should hear these two candidates. Uh, I would say mano a mano, but they're two females. So, you know, one mano a one mano. Um, and then you just, we, we just got to, I just don't understand why, why some of these, you know, heavily populated Republican areas have not done it before we did it. I mean, it's really, I mean, once again, it's a bit self-congratulatory, but, but and it's a team effort, like you sure. said, uh, not, I mean, not only the candidates and obviously uh, from the radio station and broadcast angle, but you have the, the local party officials available. You have venue people available. And like the one we did with the seventh congressional district, we had television to consider and, and, and a partnership and everybody's interest had to come together had to work together and uh, to pull it off. So it is a lot of work behind the scenes. And I'm pretty proud of what we've done. And apparently people who do this in other places don't want to work that hard. <laughs> I, I don't no. know. I mean, or they just don't come up with the idea. It's not rocket science. You, you got a, a hotly contested superintendent of education race in a, states who, in a states who, whose, a state whose motto 
has traditionally been, uh, I miss sarcastically, you know, thank God for Mississippi. Mm-hmm. And here we are, the only television network, excuse me, radio network in the state who's convinced these two candidates and campaigns it's worth your time to sit down um, in Florence County, South Carolina, and debate the issues of the um, the superintendent of education's race. 843-661-0937 is our number. Let's take our first break of the morning. We'll be back with our first caller of the morning. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Good morning, Breeze. You're on. Hey, guys. You know, Kitty, y'all are right. Uh, we've got to clean up our state. Yeah, but, you know, I've always, you know, you hear me focusing mainly on the national world stuff. We do have to clean up our state and make sure that the, that the, uh, politicians that are supposed to be representing people to think the way we do and believe the way we do with the Christian values and so forth, that they really are what they say they are. I realize some of these Democrat primaries, you just got to have to get the lesser of two evils. And we just aren't going to, if you live in a area that's represented by Democrats, you aren't represented. That's just the bottom line. But you just try to get the lesser of two evils there. So I commend you for that. But what really discouraged me yesterday, you know, and, and granted, he may be a nice guy, but poor old Hoffman. There's no there, do you, do you see any middle ground with that guy? No, I mean none. There is none. Zero. There's no middle ground. I mean, there's not even him giving an inch. You know, I mean, and I've always consistently gone against Republicans and Democrats alike, but he couldn't even. Bring, I mean, Joe Biden, a defender of democracy. Can you say that out loud, Nancy Pelosi, a defender of democracy? Can anybody say that out loud three times and not feel foolish? Chuck Schumer, a defender of democracy. And I could throw in Lindsey Graham. I could throw in Liz Cheney. And I could throw in Mitt Romney and a half dozen more Republicans more. But if there's no common ground there, I hope he's in the minority. I really do. Because if, there, if, that's, if we're on that far of a side of the spectrum, he may be right. That it may have to be a civil war, and it won't be white or black like a lot of fools think. It'll be daggled, uh the people that believe in this ESG stuff, that believe in and, and democracy. I mean, maybe you meant to say socialism or communism. He, he didn't mean to say democracy. And, of course, we are a Democrat republic. But, I mean, that was just so, so discouraging. That, that you know, and and, and God for God, I just hate to guess what he's what these kids are learning, even though he claims that he's tries to keep politics out of it. With that kind of a mindset, I don't see how that's possible. It's just very discouraging, very discouraging. You know, but we've got to fight the fight here on the ground, though. And I, and also, once these guys get to Washington, we set up to Washington, we can't, we, we got to, I mean, they signed up for the job, and so they need to take the heat. And, you know, and we've got to hold, to hold our... Um, People, you know, whoever it may be, we need to dang old um, hold them accountable. And, it, and it, you know, and I think it has to be, you know, activism is calling them, writing letters, you name it, and um, being fearless because, you know, a lot of people are scared to do that because they think that there will be some kind of uh, retribution. You know, and frankly, I thought about it myself, but I do think we need to uh, really go after these people to hold their feet to the fire and, and whatever they campaign on. 
we need to make sure they do it. If, we don't, if they don't do it, get rid of them. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it, my man. Um, there's a New Yorker profile. The New Yorker magazine did a profile on, it's actually online, did a profile on Ron DeSantis. And it, it's very interesting. Um, so it was know, meant to be a hit piece. Well, of course. I mean, it's a hit piece from the New Yorker, but it's meant to strongly suggest that DeSantis might be the front runner, you know, in the Republican Party if indeed Trump decides not to run. And I'm hearing that Trump's family are strongly discouraging him. His wife and kids are saying, hey, let's keep doing what we're doing. Um, you've got a voice. You've got a forum. People um, care passionately about what you did, what you have to say. Uh, but we don't want to go through that again. I mean, that's what I'm hearing from people who are, once again, not in his inner inner circle, but in a much tighter circle than I am. Let's leave it there. Um, but the New Yorker piece is beginning to disparage Ron DeSantis because he's become an effective um, spokesperson for the America First movement. But in the in the uh, in the piece in the article, um, there's a there's a quote by a guy who was a a former chief of staff to Governor Bob Martinez, who most would call a moderate Republican. I want to read it because Jeremy Carl actually tweeted this out Saturday or Sunday that I read. Um, GOP leaders appear to be happy to follow um, this new movement. There's always been an element of the Republican Party that was back crap crazy. Didn't say back crap, but I'll say it. Back crap crazy. Um, Max Stepanovich, the chief of staff, to Governor Bob Martinez, a moderate Republican, told me they had lots of different names. They were John Birchers. They were movement conservatives. They were the religious right. And what we did um, every time, excuse me, and we did what every other Republican candidate did. We exploited them. We got them to the polls. We talked about abortion. We promised trade policy differences, and we did nothing. They could grumble, but their choices were limited. So what happened, Stepanovich continued, Trump opened Pandora's box and let them out. All the nasty stuff that was in the underbelly of American politics got a voice. Now, he refers to the movement as the nasty underbelly. I disagree with that, but stick with me. Um, all the nasty stuff that was in the underbelly of American politics got out. What was 35% of the Republican Party is now 85% and it's too late to turn back. So he's accepting as an establishment Republican, that we're not turning back. We're not going back to the days of just telling people what they want to hear and expect the, expecting them to come. You know, I mean, that's exploitation. I mean, the Republican primary voter has been exploited for a long, long time by a lot of different people who could have cared less about your plight in life. That they could have, I mean, they never had or gave any consideration to what you believed. Um, they gave you lip service because they needed you every two or four years and you were kind of a loyal robot. I mean, robotically, you showed up at the poll. You voted for the Republican. Um, you kind of, you know, I voted sticker on your shirt, a GOP hat, or, or you know, pin on your lapel. Um, but those people never cared for you. They, they never appreciated um, the policies that would advance the common man, you know, the American middle class, the American working class. And, um, and George, excuse me, uh, Mark Stepanovich is simply admitting that. Well, that 35% is turned into, he says, 85. I argue 65. I mean, I argue two and three. Republicans identify as America firsters. They, they've embraced the MAGA movement. They are not going back kicking and screaming uh, under any circumstance or situation. Are they going back to their loyalty 
for the Bush Doctrine, the Romney plan, the John McCain uh, of the world. And, you know, that's kind of a, I mean, that's a kerfuffle. I mean, that's a, that's a fundamental disagreement the party has with its voters today. Now, here's where Trump goofed up. Because in the article, I went and read the New Yorker article. Here's when they go into kind of specific detail about Trump and the mistakes he made. And I've often said this, um, the Trump voter was America first. No question about that. But when Donald Trump hired Rents Priebus, I mean, there's a guy named Rents Priebus, representative of the America First movement. And Priebus, I mean, he served the president, I guess, admirably. But but he, he was allowed to appoint a lot of people in different positions within the government. Um, and then he got Jared Kushner. Kushner is a, um, a limousine liberal. I mean, he's not a, a, a you know, an orthodox America first conservative. I think Trump's message was in contradiction to the people implementing, implementing policies. Um, Trump held these generals. I mean, it's almost like an infatuation he had with some of these generals. You know, I mean, we, we've heard him talk about the American military in a way that's, uh, there's, there, you know, there, there's an odd infatuation that Trump seemed to have with military leadership. Almost like, I want to be Rambo. I mean, you're nodding your head. But I, you, did you sense some of this? I mean, I, you know, um, I've always worn a suit and been a kind of a privileged kid. But, I've, you know, I really want people to think I'm a warrior. I want people to think I've, you know, I kill people with my bare hands. And, uh, I mean, you see some of that, uh, some of that sensibility in Trump. But, but the mistake Trump made, and the reason I'm arguing with this, DeSantis can't make that mistake. If America first is to take the next step on this journey of wherever it leads us, I don't have any idea where we're headed. You don't. Nobody does, in all honesty. But he can't make the mistake that Trump made by putting Priebus in charge of the functioning of an administration. He can't put Jared Kushner in charge. He's got to find somebody like J.D. Vance with America first in his DNA, somebody who eats, breathes, and I mean, lived it. I mean, understands it in the first person at a very intimate level. That's the only way we execute phase two of America first. You can't farm it out to a guy named um, Jared Kushner and Rents Priebus. And once again, I think they were Lord of the President. I think they were well-intended by and large. But Priebus, I mean, how many America firsters you know named Rents? I don't know anybody well, named Rents there, there you other go. than I mean, him. But, but that, you know, and, and the article... Now, but the New Yorker thinks they're being critical of Trump. To me, they're being a bit insightful because Trump didn't make some mistakes. There's no doubt about it. Um, the message resonated with about two-thirds of Republican primary voters who do believe the game is rigged, who do understand now that they've been exploited for political and personal advantage. And I'm talking about personal by getting wealthy. You know, people within the party using you, the voter, to basically prop their careers up. Uh, insiderism. Is how it was referred to. We talk about defense, defense contractors, and you know, lobbyists. Um, Paul Ryan was here on behalf of of Tom Rice. Paul Ryan didn't leave Ohio to come here; he left Washington to come here. I mean, he's a lobbyist. He's a consultant. He's a board member. I mean, he cashed his chips in at the end of the run. But 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 I just you know, if DeSantis is the guy, then then we must demand of DeSantis to not make some of the mistakes Trump made. In the early days, it's understandable. I mean, somebody like Trump who didn't live politics, you know, he runs for president. He wins the presidency. He's got this um, this loyal family who he holds in high regard. And he says, okay, Jared, you take care of all this. And, and Kushner is a smart guy, a very smart guy. But is Kushner really the guy that understands uh, what Stepanovich calls the um, the soft, excuse me, the nasty stuff of the underbelly? I'd call it American life. I mean, I'd call it the American working class. 
and really that's the disdain on full display uh, of what some of the establishment elites feel about. Um, you consider yourself the American working class. They consider you the, the nasty stuff of the underbelly because you're not a member of Congressional Country Club. You're not a, um, you, you don't frequent some of the restaurants and um, cocktail parties of the D.C. speaking but, but circuit. This is coming from a Republican? This is coming from, yeah, uh, Mark Stepanovich, yeah. the chief of staff to Governor Mar- Bob Martinez. Because it sounds an awful lot like deplorable when he says well, I mean, the that's nasty exactly, un- that, That's the point I'm trying to make. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly the point. Um, it's a little bit like, who would you rather have, the PGA or the Saudis? I don't want either. I mean, I certainly under, I understand the um, the nature of the Saudis. I understand they're trying to legitimize themselves in the Western golf world by just offering more money than God. I mean, I get that, and I'm not naive to any of that. But I have such disdain for the PGA. I look at the PGA as, I mean, it's a monopoly that is federally registered as a not-for-profit. That's not a business. I mean, I'd love to run a monopoly that was federally registered as a not-for-profit. I mean, you don't have to be real good at it. So, so when you look at the Democrats, I guess the Democrats would be the Saudis in this PGA kerfuck. The, the Democrats would be the Saudis, and the establishment would be the PGA. I don't like either. I mean, I just simply do not. I mean, I, I, don't have, I don't think either have your best interests at heart. So, so, yeah, I believe the Democrats are vehemently opposed to people like me and people like you and people like the majority of folks listening to my voice. But I don't believe the Republican establishment is your friend, nor it never has been your friend. Let's go to the phone. Here's Mark in Branchville listening to WTQS in Orangeburg this morning. Hey, Mark. Hey, man, good morning. This is probably going to be uh, quite controversial, but yesterday listening to the you know, professor, that was, like I say, I'm kind of like Breeze. It was a little bit unnerving, to say the least. But, um, and Ken, I've heard you use um, Jefferson quite a bit, and I've, I've done a lot of reading on Jefferson, and, and I really like everything he's always said. But you know what? Um, the, the professor said mentioned Jefferson, too. But, you know, Jefferson's constituents weren't the constituents we have today. Um, Jefferson's constituents were white males that owned land. Um, and that's where he got his opinions on who was voting and who was running the country. Now, I'm not so, you know, saying that people don't need, women don't need to vote and blacks don't need to vote. I'm not saying that one bit. I'm saying that you've got to have some skin in the game to be able to vote or to have an idea of what's going on with this country, the same way with these, these immigrants coming over and just giving them a vote. They have paid no taxes. They have done nothing to, to, to further our democracy or our republic at all. Yeah, they will get a vote and a say-so in how our republic is ran. And I think that's one of the saddest things in the world. And even, I mean, even people that, um, you know, if you're a criminal, you don't get to vote. I mean, you know, but if you don't, you don't have any skin in the game, you don't pay any taxes, um, why should you have say-so? All you do is sit there with your hand out. And, I mean, I know that's a little controversial, but I, I think that's something that we, you know, we fail to, to remember sometimes that, you know, uh, we, people paying the bills are pay, uh, paying taxes. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. That's controversial, but it's becoming more mainstream. Things that Republican voters historically been afraid to say are now being said openly. Uh, they always preface it with, I know this is a bit controversial. It, it's really not. I mean, some of these notions are becoming more and more and more mainstream. Um, the, you know, the media is trying to marginalize people like that. I mean, the previous caller would have been called racist from the get-go. The second he said Jefferson's constituency was uniquely different than the constituency of the modern American politician, he would have been labeled a racist. Um, People, I I mean, I suspect, and once again, I don't have any data to show this 
to be absolutely true. But it seems to me at the gut level, people are tired of being told what they can and cannot say. And there's a certain liberating that Trump brought in. I mean, to me, that's the paradigm shift. The things Trump said, many, many, many Americans thought, you know, the, even those that condemn Trump or, or appear to be shocked by what Trump said, um, they would say those things in cigar lounges. They would say those things in country clubs. They would say those very same things. Um, that's why I still think Trump's numbers are better than we, I mean, Trump's numbers will always be better than we think they are because there's certain people who believe what he says, but have, you know, certain specific social standings and circles of influence. They got to be real careful about how they're perceived in that. But it seems to me there's an element in American politics today that throw caution to the wind and say whatever it is they feel needs to be said because they just, they don't find any friend. I mean, there, there's not, you know, is the Republican party my friend or not? Um, I think it eventually will be if you're an American worker, because I do believe that America first sustains itself. It becomes a, uh, the most powerful force in American politics. I'll predict, I've said it before and I'll say it again. I think America first is the political force that will define the rest of my life. I mean, I think it will be the dominant force, the prevailing force, um, a force to be reckoned with for the balance of my life. It, it will be the confrontation. It will be the, uh, the opposition to the liberal movement that, that I think is evil at its core. I mean, I, I really believe that. I think the liberal movement in America today, we're talking about transgenderism and drag queens in schools. I mean, that's evil. That's human depravity. And, and the elitist establishment Republican Party is not going to confront that. They have no desire at all to, to be the contradictory force to that sort of energy. It's it's up to America first. And I think enough people are willing now to say, yeah, I mean, I, that, that's me. Do with me what you choose, but that's where I stand. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937. couple of callers. Let's go to the phone. Charles in Lamar. Good morning, Charles. Good morning, I, you know, I, I get out and walk my dog every morning before y'all come on the air with my AirPods in and just waiting with bated breath so I can hear the latest crime story out of Robinson in Scotland County every morning. <laughs> I just wanted to throw that out there. Uh, <laughs> Thanks. We have a number of rhinos who are supporting this gun BS, um, including at least one of our senators who I never voted for ever until 2020. I felt like I had to because of uh, how strong his opponent was. But let me just throw something out there to you guys about red flag. Um, let's say my dog gets loose and he runs across the road and he kills one of my neighbor's chickens. And my neighbor doesn't call 911, but he calls the main number at the sheriff's office and he says, you know, this guy across the road from me is kind of crazy. I know he's bought a bunch of guns recently, and the FedEx man delivered 300 rounds of ammunition to his house last week, and he's, uh, he's really a threat to society. Now, I'm a personal friend of the sheriff in Darlington County. I had lunch with him yesterday, but he's not going to come to my house. There's going to be a deputy come to my house. And it, based on the red flag law and based on that one conversation that my neighbor had with them on the phone, they could confiscate all my guns, all my ammunition, without me having 
committed a crime, been accused of a crime, let alone convicted without any due process. Somehow we have got to stop this. This is out of control. The Second Amendment gives us a right, and it's totally and completely out of control for them to think that on a whim they can come knock on my door and take my firearms. It's BS. Thank and you, Charles. Well, that's a lot. Thank you. Appreciate that. We know the um, the senator that Charles is referring to, and he did say yesterday he's on the record saying, I'm going to support the gun legislation. I intended to get in that at about 730 or 745 this morning. But, yeah, they have a deal. Remember McConnell said if the text matches the framework, mm-hmm. I'm a yes. And um, many other – I say many. Some other Republicans are in lockstep there. The red flag legislation concerns me more than it ever has. And I've said this, guys, I am more anti-abortion than I've ever been. I'm more pro-Second Amendment than I've ever been. Those two issues, I feel like the liberals forced my hand. I mean, I did believe there had to be a certain degree of pragmatism when it came to the Second Amendment. I've I've always felt that, you know, I don't want to say moderation, but pragmatism, Um, some of the background checks, some of the ways we keep guns out of the hands of, of dangerous Americans, I thought was a sane and reasonable position but when you're dealing with unreasonable and insane people, you, you can't acquiesce. You can't give in. And so I stand firmly where Charles is. And, um, you know, so some of the juvenile records and, I don't know, Rev, um, creating a methodology of which these records are more readily available, that, that, that sounds reasonable. But, but once again, the, who gets to decide whether or not I can own a gun? That's That's – you got to be careful there. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Couple of callers held on during the break. Let's be gracious of their time and go there. Larry in the PD. Hello, Larry. Good morning. Um, I got just two points. I guess that I really want to make. Why is it? You know, there's a lot of, of rights that are enumerated in, in our constitutional amendments. How come none of them are ever being discussed? As well, you know, there's limits. Like, how about the amendment that that you know revokes slavery. Are there limits to that amendment? Like, well, you know, we revoke slavery except unless it's a really good reason. No one would ever talk like that. But when it comes to the Second Amendment, we all line up and say, well, there there just should be some reasonable limits on that. How about the the amendment that gives women the right to vote? Um, Should should there be some reasonable limits on that? You know, only, only cool women? Only smart women? Only, you know, a certain color woman? No. No limits. When, when those amendments are passed, that's it. That's the end of the discussion. It's over. It's over. But for some reason, the First and Second Amendments, everybody wants to bring them up and say, well, you know, we should limit those. Those are the ones that pave the way for all the others. And that's what I think people are, are not understanding. And, you know, civics classes have really failed mostly our politicians, not just our electorate. But the other part is with this thing, Ken, do you believe in an invisible being that you've never seen in your whole life that's in control of everything? Man, I don't know if you deserve to have a gun, sir. All it takes is one person with the wrong mentality, and it'll probably end up being your probate judge. And we don't even probably think about who that is when we when we elect them. But, you know, if your family's got six or seven lives in it and they want to go get you committed, they're going to haul you down to the probate judge and say, this guy believes that... Only women can have babies. Take his guns. This is very, very, very dangerous. Very dangerous. 
And I'm going to be honest with you, it's enough for me to vote out Lindsey Graham or my mother or my best friend. We cannot back off on these two because they are the gateway to every other right that we've got, the right to speech and the right to bear arms. They hold everything else together. Thank you, Larry. Well stated, well said. And um, as Larry's speaking, I go back 20 years. That would have been an extreme point of view. That would have been radical. That that would have been out of the mainstream. There's no way a guy. That's that crazy radio show crowd. Guys, th- this is a, a thought that is beginning to become far and far more mainstream. The white American liberal, I've said it before and I'll say it again, are dedicated to transforming our country into something you nor I would recognize. Trust me. Trust me. Um, I think Larry makes very valid points. Um, this this uh, sodomy and grooming and LGBT religion, um, kind of an anti-white ideology uh, pumped into the minds of millions of Americans who are a bit squishy on what they believe and, and why they stand for certain things. And, and I, you know, I've said it, I'll say it again. Um, the majority of liberalism is not birthed out of the, I mean, it comes from the Democrat Party. That's the vessel and vehicle of which these the, these predominantly white American liberals, normally Northeastern, normally affluent, are highly educated, um, living above average means, they're the ones that are fundamentally trying to transform this country, and, and they don't believe. Here's what they believe. They believe ex- expressly that they have the right to speak. Um, you do with limitations. They have the right to defend themselves. Um, you do with limitations. Madonna has bodyguards. Madonna has... um. Uh, guard houses on her compound. Madonna can afford that. I'm not offended that Madonna has bodyguards. I'm not bothered at all that Madonna has. Um, well, she's my guy. I mean, I, I, I don't want to be hypocritical here. Um, Springsteen's home has a guard shack uh, at either entrance. Um, I've seen videos of Springsteen walking on the beach and about three guys nonchalantly walking around. They looked as if they're kind of blending in. They're not. They're there to take care of him, to make sure he's protected, he's guarded, he's not He's not threatened. I mean, it's the rules for the, for thee, not for me. I mean, that, that, that is the mindset of what I call the, the predominantly white American liberal, um, highly educated, normally a little more affluent than most, and and they they honestly want to transform the country, and to transform the country, they need you to be quiet and not able to defend yourself. That's not fringy, guys. That's not extreme. Forget the LGBT religion or the anti-white ideology for a second. They believe the it is necessary for you to not be allowed to say whatever it is you believe and for you to not be able to defend yourself as the Constitution has afforded you. They are the reason. I am as close to a Second Amendment absolutist as I've ever been. And if we keep heading down this road, I'll be convinced before long to do away with background checks and some of the red flag. I mean, I do believe it's sane and reasonable if you're dealing with a, an honest foe. If, In other words, if we're having an honest, genuine debate about safety and violence and, and keeping Americans safe, I think if you believe both parties have a genuine interest in that, that there's a reason to discuss amicably some of these issues. But but I, I don't believe they're honest brokers. I don't for a, think for a second it's about violence in schools or keeping Americans safe. I think it's to transform America. And to transform America, they need you to be quiet, First Amendment, censorship, and they need you to not be able to defend yourself. And there's the threat to the, the Second Amendment. And I think it's shameful that Republicans go along with this, believing 
that Democrats and liberals are operating in good faith. Senator Mike Lee sent out this tweet um, nine hours ago, so late last night. Process matters. This evening we received the text of a new gun proposal with a blind vote was required within an hour. With only moments to review, no committee hearings, no regular order, a vote was held with implications concerning an essential constitutional right. The American people deserve better from the world's, quote, greatest deliberative body. Yeah. And and that's and that's the bill that Senator Graham voted for. Correct? That's the bill that if the text matched the framework, those Republicans were a yes. To me, they found out yesterday um, some staffer with McConnell's office probably, I mean, it would have been a senior staffer, but some, some senior staffer probably reviewed the text and went to, to the senator and said, yeah, the, the text is what the framework was. Uh, and we're, you know, he probably called Lindsey and whoever the other senators are. And, and now we've got a yes vote. So it's, uh, it's bipartisan. But I think Larry makes a very valid point. Why aren't we negotiating on some of the things liberals? In other words, with the IRS, why are we debating 38 or 35 uh, effective tax rate? Why, why aren't we about, why aren't we debating abolishment of the Fed, or excuse me, abolishment of the IRS? And I'm so accustomed to saying abolishment of the Fed, <laughs> yeah. abolishment of the IRS or 38%. I mean, why, why is our starting point at 35 and theirs is 45 and we end up at 38.6? Why is ours not the abolishment of the Fed? I mean, if we're truly conservative, if we're truly pro-American, if we believe that government is subservient to the people, then why is the republic? Why are the Republicans, when it comes to tax policy, not saying, "Well, okay, your starting point is forty-four percent marginal uh, tax rate. Ours is zero. In fact, ours is abolishment ours of the is IRS. To, to take that amendment out. Yeah, well, the, the, yeah. The, it's the not amendment absolute. to the amendment to raise in, to raise revenue via income tax. We want to start. Our starting point is the abolishment of that. Um, but because they're go along and get along Republicans. Let's go to the phone. Carl in the PD. Good morning, Carl. Hey guys, what's going on? Hey Carl. Hey, um, I'll just touch on this whole amendments thing. Um, the those amendments are touchy issues because they can all be abolished, each and all, um, because they were amendments to begin with. But I'm not going to say one thing or another about because you just proved, Ken, that there's some amendments that. Uh, people on our side want to abolish, and then there's some amendments that people on the other side want to abolish, and all of that can happen. So you got to just fight for. I mean, none of them are sacred and inviolable. Um, but I didn't call about that. Uh, the thing I called about was, um, you know, I'm a I'm a rush orphan, and there was some there was some things I didn't agree with everything Rush had to say, even though I was his biggest fan. Just like I call him your biggest fan. I don't agree with everything you have to say. I just love the, you know, I just love the, the process. One thing that Rush said that I disagreed with until he, until he closed his eyes was that um, the, the open border tactic, it may, he may have been saying, you know, he may, he may have believed this and, and this may have been, you know, I, I agree that he's probably right, that having an open borders policy was the Democrats' way of increasing votes for them. I never agreed with that. That I never agreed that that would actually happen. Um, I don't, you don't see any of these um, um, illegal immigrants over here lining up to, to, you know, to vote in mass, um, coming off their jobs and voting in, in elections or primaries. However, 
the, the their second generation, the ones who are you know born here, go go to school here, and so forth, they do vote. And I know there are a lot of them right they're here in the PD, and I know them, and they are not to a person, but they are overwhelmingly conservative, and they overwhelmingly vote for Republicans. And so, and I knew that I knew that when Rush was saying that this was a um, you know a, a voter registration thing for Democrats, that that is not how that would happen. So that's going to backfire on them. In the meantime, uh, you know we're getting all these drugs across here. Now the uh, the last thing is, who do these people think they are, trying to keep Donald Trump from being president again? I mean, uh, Ivanka better go sit down. Um, Eric better go sit down. Trump, I know Trump Jr. is not saying that Dad can't be president. He's he's probably the one holdout. And if if uh, what's his wife's name, Melania is saying this, which you know she may or may not be, they better sit down and shut up unless they're going to take him off of all of his other um, business dealings. With, you know, if, if they're going to take him out of the Trump organization altogether, he's more valuable in the White House than any of these other folks that are going to be, you know, uh, potential runs. And we need him for another eight years. And that's the end of that. So better, they better knock it off. Thank you, Carl. Appreciate that. <laughs> Once again, I'm repeating things that I hear um, folks. I mean, I, you know, I've got a source who is not in Trump's inner circle, but I would say he's in Trump's, uh, he's on the periphery of the inner circle and he hears things and he tells me certain things and there are other things uh, he won't tell me, but he tells me that a lot of the Trump family are discouraging Donald from running again. Now, once again, I don't have that on solid sources. That's a friend of a friend of a friend. Take it for what it's worth. I mean, we got to believe there's some uh, family conversations being had about whether we want to do this again or not. Um, And and apparently, it's pretty obvious who choice two is. I mean, I think we've had this big debate about if not Trump, whom. I think that's pretty well settled right now amongst Trump voters. I mean, Republican primary voters may have a different take. Larry Hogan and some of these other guys you've heard about. Good luck with that. Um, But it seems that the Trump voter says, if not Donald, then Ron DeSantis. I mean, I could probably be as supportive of DeSantis, maybe not as passionately supportive. In other words, I don't know if you see DeSantis flags in beach parades. You know, I mean, I think that's a one-time phenomenon. I mean, I think there's a certain, I don't know, or have a certain celebration that people have internally and externally when they fly the Trump flag at the boat parades. And uh, I tell you, I went to a funeral in Pamplico last week, and there were Trump umbrellas at the funeral. I mean, it was hot. It was outside. It was muggy and humid. And people brought umbrellas to stay in the shade. And I'll be damned if two of them weren't Trump 2020 umbrellas. <laughs> um, the guy that we buried, I, I, I think I said this on the radio, the guy we buried was in my family business 45 years. Um, I don't know a uh, my father's business without this guy there. Died at 66 years old, far too young, had some, some medical complications. Anyway, um, since Trump got elected in 16, I don't think I ever saw him without a Trump baseball cap on. I mean, it wasn't the, the, the Make America Great Again had every time. I mean, he had a selection. He had a um, kind of a, uh, you know, this choice or that choice. It was um, Keep America Great, Trump 2024. 
I think I saw him not long ago with a Trump 2024. So he's looking into the future. I don't know that DeSantis can do that. I mean, I don't know that the guy that builds truck beds in Pamplico is going to wear a DeSantis hat at every turn, around every corner, that there was some affection and connection that people had with Donald Trump. And the weirdness of this, Rev, is the guy that builds truck beds in Pamplico has nothing in common with Donald Trump. But there's this unspoken loyalty and commitment that he made to that politician in a way that no other politician, now the elite and establishment will say, well, he played your guys. You know, that's what Trump does. I mean, what politician doesn't? I mean, stop acting like Trump is the only self-serving, self-dealing, full-of-himself politician in America. He's one of many. He's just better at it than the others. I think that's the disgruntlement. I think that's the um, uh, the reason they find him so offensive in a world of BS. He's just a better BSer than all the rest. And I want to say something Carl said. I'm more of a rush orphan than I thought I ever would be. In some of these moments in time, and, and I want to be a little bit critical but respectful, in, in, in these, in th- there are certain days that only Rush could explain it the way it needed to be explained. Uh, these other guys can't. I mean, Tucker is probably as close as anybody. Um, I think Bongino has, has found his niche, but Bongino, with all due respect, ain't Rush. Clay Travis and Buck Sexton, you know, we've kind of got, I mean, they actually took Rush's place, but, but they, they just can't explain it. I mean, on a, on a given day. Okay. Okay. Good radio show, my man, a little bit like us, but, but on other days you just miss the mark. Rush hardly ever missed the mark. And I mean, he was kind of a unicorn. We talk about Steve Spurrier being a, a coaching unicorn. Um, Rush was a, a media unicorn. It's just hard to, uh, and I know there have been, what, a handful of days in the last couple of years that I just wanted to turn the radio on at 12.05 and hear Rush explain it the way I knew it needed to be explained. A lot of us have these thoughts. What We understand with clarity exactly what we believe and, and we're convinced we're right, but, but it's hard to articulate. You know, some of the smartest people in my world uh, don't do a great job of articulating themselves. A certain person comes to mind now, far brighter than I'll ever think about being. If we took an IQ test, he'd lap me. I mean, he, he, would, he would run circles around me, but when he tries to explain himself, he kind of gets in his own way. And you leave the conversation saying, he's that smart, but can't explain it any better than that. Limbaugh just never, ever didn't explain things exactly the way they needed to be. He was wrong, and I think Carl's exactly right. The one beef I have with Rush, Carl has one beef, the one beef I have is corporate America. I think Rush didn't want to believe that corporate America had so distorted capitalism in the name of American prosperity. I've never been as big a fan of corporate America as Rush was. And I, I would imagine if Limbaugh were here today, he'd say, well, I mean, I'm a pure capitalist. And pure capitalism, i say, okay, how do you support corporate America? If you're a pure capitalist, you'd probably be a little bit more anti-corporate America because what they've done is spend an enormous amount of money to do what? Distort capitalism in a way that, so, so yeah, I mean, Carl had an issue with the uh, the border and some of the immigration thoughts that, that Rush had. I had a big issue with him always defending at every turn corporate America in the name of, of capitalism. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. We, we don't <laughs> condone it, but we like it, April Old. That was a good uh, one. Okay, we don't condone it, but we like it. Um, I kind of condone it at times. I think it's necessary at times. Uh, there's the spirit of Thomas Jefferson alive and well. Let's go to the phone. Here's Verd, Marlboro County. Hey, Verd. 
Good morning, man. How's it going? Morning, sir. You sound a little better. I'm getting there. Uh, still struggling a little bit, but uh, anyway, we'll get there. Uh, Ken, back to yesterday, you did a great job on the interview with Ellen. Uh, I've been in politics a long time, and I don't think I've ever heard uh, the questions you asked and the delivery that Ellen gave. Uh, I don't think I've ever heard a politician give a better interview than she did yesterday. She was sharp, up front, never hesitated in her answers. And I think she dispelled any rumors yesterday that she definitely is the person we need for superintendent of education in South Carolina. It was just a great interview, and I've heard I've had a bunch of people. I put a bunch of stuff up on Facebook, and everybody has said the same thing that uh, they had not didn't know anything about her. But when they heard that interview that you gave with her yesterday, it pretty much uh, they they decided who they were going to vote for. She's got work ahead of her. I think her opponent had, if I'm not mistaken, about 101,000 votes, and she got about what 78 or 79,000. So there's a deficit there, but that's not uncommon. I mean, you know, will will there be a consolidation around uh, Verd? You could tell better than I. I think she's arguing that she's the true conservative Republican in this race, the reform candidate in this race. So we'll see whether the other the candidates that didn't make the runoff, uh, if their supporters will consolidate around around Weaver. Is that well, the way you see it? Mr. Bledsoe, the second, third place manager, he got 47,000 votes, and he uh, endorsed her the next day. So that throws her way over the top, and I think a lot of his supporters will uh, get around Ellen. But, uh, you know, uh, Manus has been in the system for 28 years, and we're 48th in the country. And she's, uh, she's part of the problem, and uh, never been any part of the solution. And stuff. So she's been in there for 28 years, and it's uh, got us 48. So, uh, no, she's status quo, and I think the people in South Carolina, it's time for us to change the education system in the state, and there's only one person that's going to do that, and that's reformer Ellen Weaver. Thank you, Verd. Appreciate it, my man. Hope you keep getting better. And, um, well, I mean, Verd probably can't be there tomorrow night of the debate. Thank you, my man. Good to hear from you. Let's go to the phone. Someone else is there. Our next caller is David in the PD. Hello, David. Hey, good morning. Hey, Ken, how about this name? Yesley Vega. District 7, Virginia. From yesterday. Mm-hmm. Congress. Uh, and guess who took over uh, that seat officially yesterday? Myra Flores. Uh, and I was encouraged. Um, I saw an interview Winsome Sears. Uh, the lieutenant governor of Virginia. So that whole narrative of what I call stale, pale, male, uh, Republicans doing a good job with that. And and you, you've you uncovered what I call, I call the elitist pale males uh, that are affluent and northern and woke. They're opportunists. So they always try to paint us in that corner. So guess who we're voting for? Uh, because it, what what always bothered me, you remember that Gillespie ad the other, I mean, what was that, about five years ago? Mm-hmm. For governor of Virginia. It, it, all Ken Ard's got to do all day long is get in his pickup truck and go try to bother somebody or disturb somebody. Well, Ken Ard's probably the type of guy, if he, if he did see somebody on the side of the road, he'd be the first one to try to help them. So it just bothers me they do that narrative. And I, I tell you, I'm, I'm so proud of Tim Scott. Saw him yesterday. He had an interview, and I call it the old Skype background. And and, and, and this is what I love about Tim. He's got the South Carolina flag, the U.S. flag. He had a picture there. I guess it had a cross on the flag. This is Christian. And he had a Gamecock helmet. So, I mean, I, and I guess he's been out to Iowa. Would would. 
would you not vote for somebody like if you had a binary choice, would you vote for Biden or Tim Scott? I mean, these these people up there, these Northeast people, they try to make any of these simple things that, that and they're the true racists. They are the true racists. I'll leave it at that. Thank you, David. Appreciate it. Talking about, I want to get back to some of the gun control legislation. I said that we'd, um, we discussed that at length. You know, I've got, um, I mean, it's not my job, but, you know, and I don't want to call it any names here, but there are two candidates in South Carolina today that I think Lindsey Graham should be afraid of. I mean, I really believe that, that there are two candidates. Um, he's been lucky and pro- probably very strategic in not drawing the sort of opponent, but um, the U.S. Senate did vote yesterday um, to advance some of this, a procedural vote. They advanced uh, what they call it as bipartisan gun control bill. Um, 14 Republicans supported the bill, and you can cut it, slice it, dice it, discuss it, debate it any way you'd like, but it is a firearm restriction bill. I mean, it is a, I don't want to say it's an assault. I would imagine the NRA would call it assault. Maybe they won't use that word, uh, an insult to the Second Amendment. Um, but, but in all reality, you know, 14 Republicans have agreed procedurally to advance a bill that would, does support firearm restrictions. I mean, that, that's, you know, the language of the bill, I think it's 80 pages, um, 64 to 34 vote. And that's kind of the crucial step in getting the legislation to a place that it can uh, be voted on. In other words, that breaks the filibuster in the Senate. Uh, 64 Republicans, excuse me, 64 senators allow the bill to advance. Then it'll come up for an official vote. Um, and it'll need, what, 10 Republicans? You got 50 Democrats, 10 Republicans. Now, it'll be interesting to watch the, the 14 Republicans that allow the procedural vote to advance the bill, in other words, break the filibuster. Um, will all 14 of those Republicans vote for the bill? Don't have any idea, but Lindsey Graham is one of the 14. And, um, and Lindsey's cut both ways with our, our audience and Republican primary voters in South Carolina. Um, we shall see how it plays itself out and i've not read all 80 pages of the um of the bill i didn't have time yesterday afternoon but um the the gist of the bill it expands background checks um it changes the age uh well it changes the background check requirements for gun buyers under the age of 21 i mean that that's kind of in the minutiae of the bill it offers uh, incentives grants um carrots bribes um to states (laughs) for implementing their own red flag laws um that there is something in here about additional funding i would imagine senator graham will argue uh we've not been able to get him on the show here in a long time not running for office um it's amazing how those guys will come on with you when they're seeking your support and they kind of they're too busy uh to come on local Mm. broadcasting when they are um in washington doing the country's um or transacting the country's business but i would imagine Lindsay's office will argue that this was kind of a trade-off um, for the additional funding for school safety, um, addressing the mental health issue in America, uh, you don't get everything you want, you know. So we had to give up some of the um, some of the requirements for background checks to make sure we got the money necessary for safety measures, uh, the mental health issue in America today. I mean, I'm for school safety. I think the mental I think mental health is almost an epidemic in America. We've turned a blind eye to. Um, I don't know where we get the money, but it doesn't seem to matter. So when we say I'm for increasing funding for school safety, where does that money come from? I'm for increasing uh, money for the mental health. Where does that money come from? I guess it comes from the same place. It always has the, uh, the federal reserve and the fed has a $9 trillion balance sheet that they say they're going to, um, 
to kind of, you know, try to get more in line with historical averages, which is about a trillion dollars. So it's only eight trillion bucks, guys. I mean, it's only eight trillion extra money that they've got on on the ballot sheet. But um, yeah, it's it's a lot, a lot of land, and and the you know the the deficit spending at the expense of the Federal Reserve has allowed senators to escape reality. Can they escape it forever? I wish I knew the answer. I really do. I'll ask this question. I asked a buddy of mine this about a week or so ago. If America was a stock, would you short it or long it? Ooh. I mean, if America, if the United States of America were, were a stock listed on the New York Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ, would you bet long or would you bet short on what it's worth today as compared to what it'd be worth you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now. It might sound unpatriotic to answer that question. Well, it would be hard to long it. Right. I mean, you know, it would be real hard to say, That's yeah, I mean, that, that looks like a good investment. Can you send that? I mean, Buffett said Lehman got offered to him in the in the darkest days of the financial, um, you know, the, the finance, uh, the, the subprime lending fiasco and housing uh, disaster, the economic meltdown of 2008. Um, Buffett said he got a call from Paulson, who was Treasury Secretary, and asked him to look at the books on Lehman. Was he interested? And he said it only took him a minute. Now, Buffett's real good at looking at financial reports and well, where are they? Here we go with the word. Where are the red flags? You know, where should I be alarmed? Where's the creative accounting taking place? And somebody like Buffett can probably see that obviously a lot faster than I can and probably naturally gifted to see that faster than anybody else would. But Buffett said real quick, no, we're, we're not interested. Well, we don't have, might have been Bear. Might have been, it was either Lehman or Bear Stearns. That um, they were offered an investment opportunity by Hank Paulson, and Paulson was leaning on Buffett hard. We need this to happen. We don't need this domino to fall because of this. So it's probably Lehman. If this domino falls, there's contagion here. You know that there's a likelihood that others begin to fail. Um, if if you gave Buffett, it's it's an unknown company, unnamed company. It's in it's in um it's it's not you know confidentiality and all these. You're not allowed to say who the company is but it's the balance sheet of the United States of America. Does Buffett invest Berkshire Hathaway capital or not? I think we know the answer. If he didn't invest in Lehman, he damn sure isn't investing in the good old U.S. of A. When you look at its balance sheet from a practical perspective, let's go to the phone. Barry and Sherraw. Morning, Barry. Hey, good morning, guys. Ken, uh, you can see I couldn't hardly sleep last night. I was so furious with our great pride-leading Lindsey Graham uh, pride month. Lindsey Graham, uh, Ken, can you uh, can you elaborate on on? You might not want to mention names, but uh, when is these people going to come to uh, their names going to come out for the twenty twenty six? Because I'm willing to give them a hundred dollars every month uh, towards their campaign towards getting Lindsey Graham, that feckless senator from South Carolina, out. And all Clemson and Carolina fans, when he shows up for his annual. Uh, Clemson and Carolina game. Can we please make sure we boo him eighty-two thousand, bully him out the stadium when he when they put him up on the the new uh, jumbotron up there at uh, Clemson and the one we got here in South uh, at Carolina. So uh, Ken, did you see the uh, the video changing subjects? Uh, the video yesterday of the law enforcement in the hallway for fifty-eight minutes yeah. with a shield, yeah, and high capacity, yeah, yeah. Uh, Anybody going to talk about that this week? Anybody? Anywhere? National media? Anywhere? Well, CBS Four. I mean, CBS News had a pretty good report on it. Um, and if you don't know, thank you, Barry. You appreciate the call. If you don't know, um, there was a, I guess the Texas Senate 
had a hearing yesterday um, and concluded beyond a shadow of a doubt that police had enough officers on the scene in Uvalde to stop the gunman about three minutes after he entered the building. I mean, they put this puzzle together. Um, the Texas, I'm trying to think of what it's called. It's the, anyway, it's, it's those who reported the Senate on matters relating to police behavior and police conduct and, you know, what law enforcement did or did not do. Um, so police had enough officers and firepower. I mean, they had bulletproof shields. They had weaponry. I mean, they were ready and equipped and able. I mean, I think that's the key word, able. Uh, Bongino said yesterday, I agree with him, you have an obligation to do your job. I mean, part of doing your job is running in when others are running out. You signed up for that. I'm sorry. I mean, it doesn't mean you got to be stupid, and it doesn't mean you try to get killed, but but you, you accepted that responsibility, and most law enforcement officers do that. But the commanding officer, and this is, uh, once again, the report, and it's a scathing report. I mean, it is very, very scathing. Um, it says that the school massacre could have been um, including less deaths if law enforcement officers at the scene had put them put the children ahead of themselves. Now, now once again, the, the, let, let's not paint with that broader brush. It looks like, per some of the um, some of the accounting, that some of the rank and file law enforcement officers wanted to disobey the commander I mean, they were like dude i mean we've got to do something i mean we're here and nobody checked the door to see if the door was locked or unlocked i mean there's so many uh, and and look it's, it's easy to be critical when you're behind the microphone and nobody's pointing a gun at you you're not hearing gunshots go off in the background um so, so i'm certainly not insinuating that i would have done anything differently i don't know what i'd have done and you don't know what you would have done in that circumstance or situation but it's easily um, I mean, it, there is no doubt now that police officers had enough officers on the scene um, in Uvalde about three minutes after the killer entered the building. Um, they never checked to see if the classroom door was locked. That's uh, I mean, that, that's just an abject failure. And uh, and the head of the Texas State Police, uh, basically in front of the U.S. Senate, excuse me, the Texas State Senate, said that police officers with rifles stood idly by and waited in a school hallway for about an hour while a gunman killed children in a school and the officers appeared, the commanding officer appeared to make as his priority the life and safety of law enforcement officers and not the children in the classroom. I mean, that's pretty um, scathing. That's pretty direct and matter of fact, but it looks like that happens to be uh, the truth. Now, now I don't know what happens here. And once again, there are multiple reports, um, confirmed reports of law enforcement officers demanding to be allowed to go into the room. You know, and, and the commanding officer said, no, uh, if you go into the room, there's certain, I don't have any idea. I don't know what happens uh, if you disobey commands in a moment like that. But the commanding officer, here's what the oddity I find. Nobody's been fired. I mean, nobody's resigned that I've heard. Am I missing something here? I mean, it's an abject failure. And and now we find out that, you know, so many people made so many mistakes in the heat of that moment, nobody's lost their job. I mean, if you're waiting on government to help you and save you, um, I'd be real careful. And I think that goes back to the gun debate. Now, we'll continue on this, um, this legislation. I'll try to address 
I try to give you somewhat of a cliff note of the 80 page. I think I've kind of done that without laboring over 80 pages of um, hearsay and whereunto. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937. Had one text me a second ago saying, who are these two people you're talking about that, that could beat <laughs> Lindsay? I'm not disclosing that. There are two people in South Carolina politics right now that Lindsay does not need to say, I'm running for the U.S. Senate. Um, he's done a good job. And it's so interesting to me. One of the most interesting relationships in America is the South Carolina Republican primary voter and Lindsey Graham. You don't meet many that like him, but he wins overwhelmingly every time he decides to run again. Every six years, you hear the story, right? We're getting Lindsey this time. You know, Lindsey's let us down his last time. Um, I'm, I'm done with Senator Graham. I've had enough of, um, of the rhino Senator Lindsey Graham. Mm-hmm. I mean, I hear it over. I heard it when I was running for office. Uh, that was 12 years ago. Um, and it's, yeah, but it's been more prevalent, more prevalent, but, but the son of a gun wins, uh, overwhelmingly. And he's done a real good job of avoiding the kind of candidate that I think would give him serious problems. And I have no idea how he's avoided that. Um, has he had surrogates to go talk to these people to <laughs> find convince them, them to yeah, find them something to do? Um, you know, find them a um, a, a gainful, <laughs> you know, a, a gainful employment opportunity. I don't have any idea how they've done it, but um, and uh, I mean, kind of inside baseball. Uh, I'm not the only one that knows these two. It might be three that um that would be Lindsay's worst worst nightmare if they did indeed decide uh, to run for the U.S. Senate. But you know, Lindsay's Lindsay's always dare I say, walked to the beat of his own drum. Um, he's been somewhat of an independent-minded voice in Washington. There's some things I like about that. Um, you know, the gun legislation, is that a bridge too far? Don't know. Uh, we've heard from two callers this morning um, vehemently opposed to this. And I think Larry made a very valid point, and I've always said, um, let's take taxes, forget gun control, forget freedom of speech. I mean, I know we can't, but let's set those aside for a second because we've had this debate, you know, Shall the right to free speech be infringed upon? Shall the right to gun ownership be infringed upon? Well, I mean, of course they can. They have been. You can't yell fire to theater. I mean, we've decided that. Um, you can't have, uh, well, I mean, if this if this law passes, that there will be another requirement uh, made of people who decide to own guns. So, um, but let's take taxes as an example. The Republican Party, if, if, it, were, if it were truly representing the interests of its base and the people who put it in, positions of power and influence they would start by saying hey wh- where are you guys on taxes well we believe the highest margin of rate should be 52 percent well that's absurd uh and then the democrat says well where are you we're we're starting an abolishment of the irs i mean that's where we are um but but what we've done is, is we become creatures of washington we we don't want to be unpopular don't appear to be on the fringe um let me ask you what's is is taking more than half of someone's income more radical than abolishing the group that is um, responsible for collecting that money. I mean, help me with this. I mean, we talk about the Fed, right? I mean, I, I've always said abolishing the Fed is less radical than the model we're currently operating under. The way we fund our government is far more radical than the abolishment of the Federal Reserve. But once again, these organized and elite force, uh, establishment forces have convinced the masses that that this guy's a radical. Um is confiscating 52% of someone's income more radical than abolishing the IRS. But but we've, we've given in there. I mean, we, we just allowed that to be normalized. And now we're having a debate about um, 
Is 36% enough? Surely you're not going to talk about 33%. I mean, you good conservative Republican. You really believe 33%? I mean, imagine that. We're talking about uh, productivity. We're talking about, you know, how people get paid to be productive and contribute to the GDP. And conservative Republicans start at 35% or 33%. Let's use that number. Uh, I think 31% is the number. So conservative Republicans believe it's reasonable for the IRS to take one of every $3 you make. I mean, that's kind of where we are. Mm-hmm. And, and the Democrat says, no, it needs to be one of every $2 you make. So we're having a debate in Washington about taxes. Should you take one of every $3 I make? That's the conservative position. Or should you take one of every $2 I make? That's the liberal position. The conservative position would be, you know, okay. do you or do you not get as much as God? And I think tithing <laughs> is 10%. Um, yeah, the government deserves three times as much as God in heaven. Abolish the IRS. Well, I mean, yeah. Right now. And these, I'm telling you guys, this is where we're headed. I don't know how long it takes, but we're headed that way. Back in a minute. 843 hour number three on a Wednesday morning. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Steve in Florence. Good morning. You're on the air. Hey, morning, guys. Um, I don't really think these red flag laws are going to really go anywhere. I don't think people should worry or freak out about them too much because it really depends on who shows up. It's um, police. They're going to be there to investigate. It's the ATF you got to worry about when they kick in your door at 3.30 in the morning and shoot both of your dogs and you got to go to work on them. Um, but I think that's how that's going to go. And um, the other thing to worry about is the Biden administration just – um, shut down Remington of selling surplus ammo because they have that government contract. So that's 30% of the ammo off the market. And they have a new contract with SIG to transition their M4, the M4 to the SIG uh, Spear, I think it's called. They went to a higher caliber of guns. So ammo is going to go a little scarce here pretty soon. And I'll take that up here. Thank you, Steve. Appreciate it. So who does Steve remind you of, Rev? <laughs> Well, it's he's kind of dry and to the point, and then very you know, monotone. It with right? us. Yeah, I I think I think there's a, there's, there's a comedian named Stephen Wright. <laughs> he does remind me when you said it. I agreed. I was like, that's exactly who we. We'll take it off the air. You know, yeah. I don't think there's anything to worry about here. We'll take it off the air. Yeah, yeah he just got not, not a um not an ounce of panic. Nope. You know, Calls it makes is. Yeah, it and... is what it is. Here's my point. I'll make my point, and I'll take it off the air. Um, Stephen Wright is a uh, just a, a different sort of comedian, no question about it. For those familiar with Stephen Wright, he's got this delivery, and it's so dry and monotone. It, it's almost funny if he read the the Lord's Prayer. I mean, it would be funny the way he read it. One of the great stories, Stephen Wright. Uh, I mean, one of the funniest jokes. I mean, he gets on these ramblings. I mean, it, it's not a joke. I mean, there's not a punchline. He'll say things like. Someone knocked on my door yesterday and said they were from the U.S. Census and trying to figure out how many people live in the world. And I said, you have the wrong house. I have no idea. <laughs> right. And then, he, yep, and then he says, I played Little League Baseball and it was hot outside. And my teacher, I mean, my coach was a teacher at the local university and we practiced in the planetarium. I played shortstop. I stood under Mars and the second baseman stood under Jupiter. We had a real game. We were way too far apart. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just the, the delivery, and I'm like, where do you get this from, man? I mean, where does where does these sorts of uh, I don't know thoughts derive? As someone who has a busy head syndrome, uh, he apparently has busy head syndrome on 
on steroids. Talking about red flag laws, let's get serious here for a second. And Steve, we mean that complimentary because Stephen Wright is one of the um the very oh, talented yeah. and different sorts of um very little vulgarity, you know, hardly ever um inappropriate. It's just like you scratch your and I'll tell you the the the, the genius of Stephen Wright is it, kind of an intellectual Sometimes humor. You have to think about it. Yeah, you really do, and you're like. It, it, he's already told two jokes and you're like oh okay i get the other one i get the other one now i'm walking on the beach and someone walks by and he has one shoe on i said you've lost a shoe and he said no i found one <laughs> <laughs> someone broke into my home yesterday and replaced all my furniture with exact replicas <laughs> see i live on the dead end of a one-way street i've got no idea how to leave home <laughs> But Steve has that same sort, that same sort of delivery, and uh, and we mean that in the most complimentary way, of course. And I'm enjoying your impersonation too. Let me do my right. Is that oh, kind yeah. of the way he does it? No. And he kind of wipes his eyes and holds his head, and yeah. and he does. I mean, every now and then he'll let you know I'm a really smart guy, and uh, you know, but because he talks about things that are very intellectual in nature, and and they aren't jokes. I mean, it's just ramblings. I mean, it's like. It's like a, a tweet after a tweet after a tweet after a tweet, and you're like, wow, okay. And once again, by the time he's told two jokes, you're still thinking about the third one back, and you're like, oh, okay, now I get it. He's talking about, about the Orwellians, you know, or, or the uh, whatever it was. I mean, some I, some book you read 40 years ago or whatever, but I still think the one about the planetarium. <laughs> when he says we had a real game and we were way too far apart. <laughs> <laughs> that is funny. That's, but that's him. Let's go to the phone. Here's Bert in Florence. Hey, Bert. Good morning. Uh, I know y'all know this, but I just felt like it was a good day to say it. Yes, um, I know y'all all... know this grammatically correct, Bert. <laughs> it, is, it is in Whit Springs, Arkansas. Okay, it is on this show as well. So there. Because I grew up in a town that had no stoplight and only one road going through the center of town and everything else was dirt. That was it. <laughs> and that's where I grew up. My closest neighbor was a mile away. I can relate. But I am against all gun laws. I don't care how they're, oh, this safety and that safety. Forget that. I'm against every gun law. I'm against every speed law. I'm against every drug law. I'm against every child law, all of it. None of it is constitutional. What I do in my private life is my business, and there is no crime until there is a victim. Once there's a victim, you're screwed, and they should hang you in the public square, and I got no problem with that. But I guess I'm on the fringe of fringe because that's where I stand. There, If there ain't a victim, there shouldn't be a law until there's a victim, and the, the victim creates a crime. Thank you, Bert. Appreciate that. Um, I looked at the 14 senators during the last break. You've got Cornyn and McConnell, who were the lead negotiators for the Republicans. That makes me nervous anyway. I mean, anytime McConnell's in the room um, doing the dealings, I know he's the majority leader, so you expect him to be in the room when some of these negotiations are taking place. But I went back and looked at the other 12 Republicans. We know about Cornyn from Texas. Uh, we know about McConnell from uh, Tennessee or Kentucky. Kentucky. Kentucky, I'm sorry. And um, both those guys would be establishment Republicans, been there forever and a day. The other 12 are very interesting. Shelley Moore uh, Capito of West Virginia. Mm, okay, be careful in West Virginia, mm. voting for gun legislation. Joni Ernst of Iowa. 
That's surprising to me. Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, she's not a Republican. She's never been a Republican. Um, Todd Young of Indiana, a bit surprising. Um, Tom Tillis and Richard Burr of North Carolina. Uh, Burr's retiring, right? I think so. Yeah, Burr's retiring. And Tillis, I think, got beat. Yeah, did, yeah I think Tillis got beat by the well, Trump-endorsed candidate, right? I have to look it All up. Right, well, let's look that up. So, so, And then you've got Susan Collins of Maine, what's new? Uh, Mitt Romney of Utah, what's new? Bill Cassidy of Louisiana, what's new? Rob Portman of Ohio is retiring. Um, Roy Blunt of Missouri is retiring. So really and truly, uh, to me, the outliers are uh, more capital of West Virginia, Ernst of Iowa, and Young of Indiana. I mean, that, that, that you wonder, you kind of scratch your head like, okay, what are they thinking? Susan Collins is a Republican, but she's nowhere what you and I believe a Republican should be. Now, she's a Republican from Maine. Um, you know, uh, Donald Trump didn't win Maine. Donald Trump didn't win uh, some of these states, but um, Roy Blunt, Missouri, retiring, Portman, Ohio, retiring, Burr, North Carolina, retiring, and I, I don't know why I'm thinking. Maybe Tillis. Maybe I'm yeah, getting he, mistaken. He won here. in 2020. So okay, so not, Tillis is not up for yeah. re-election. Um, but the Trump endorsed candidate in North Carolina beat. I mean, they're they're replacing Burr. There you go. It's an open election. Burr's not running for re-election, so the Trump-endorsed candidate was running against a, a highly thought-of Republican in North Carolina. Um, here's the here's the okay. Let's go constitutional because uh, Bert was talking about the constitutionality or not. Um, there is an argument to be made. I'm not a legal scholar, so be careful how I make this argument. But there's an argument to be to be made, and I've heard this uh, in my time in politics that red flag laws in general violate the what what we call the due process clause of the constitution that is what section 5a if i'm not mistaken uh due process and what it, what it, what they'd argue is if you're going to have a a more in-depth background screening or background check for 18 to 20 year olds um and they're adults then you're disproportionately um you're forcing special laws upon them that you don't own 21 year old and older and if an 18 year old is an adult, they should have equal protection. They should have um, uh, a fair shot at due process. And in the Constitution, 5A and I think 14A um, guarantee that. So the more in depth background check for the 18 to 20 year old violates the constitutional basis that, that equality covers all adults. And you're going to look at them a little bit differently. Um, if 18-year-olds are considered adults, they must be treated as all other adults, correct? Mm -hmm. And and if you're saying, yeah, but on this red flag law, um, we're on this on this um, Second Amendment issue, we're going to enforce special laws. That's a violation of their constitutional right. Uh, I would imagine some state, maybe South Carolina, will um will sue. And, and say, because once again, there's been bribes offered. <laughs> you know, they're, they're calling incentives and, and, and grants, but it's basically bribing the state government to enforce some of these laws. You know, th there's some of these things that pragmatically I agree with. I mean, I, I think we should um, investigate whether someone is mentally ill or not. But, but once you start down that road, guys, um, is it the probate court judge? Does the probate court judge like you or not does he know you did he have a run-in with your family member is there political motivation behind what he does here and i think that's the concern that most two a absolutist or second amendment absolutist have is once the government starts uh, commandeering a certain amount of control over the process 
when have they ever regulated themselves? When has the government said, we would never do that with red flag laws? I mean, we understand where the getting off point is. We understand where, where the exit ramp is. We certainly understand the constitutional right you have to keep and bear arms, and that right shall not be infringed upon. Um, okay, good luck with the, with the government regulating themselves. I don't trust that, nor should you. Neither no um, should you. But, but from a constitutional perspective, from a legal argument that I think could serve the movement well, um, the 5A and 14A language would be very interesting if some scholarly sort were willing to, um, to go down that road. Um, if an 18-year-old is considered an adult, you got to treat him like you do every other adult. And the red flag laws say we're going to treat the 18, 19, and 20-year-old differently than we do the 21 and over. Let's go to the phone. Sam and Darlington, good morning. You're on the air. Morning. Uh, as to, I'll, I'll have to say right up front, uh, I'm happy with the uh, compromise legislation that they're working through in the Senate. Um, there was a time in my life when I was very uh, persuaded by the hardline libertarian argument that, you know, that, you know, this thing, um, you know, should not be not be regulated like this by the government. But uh, what has made a difference in my thinking is that if freedoms like the freedom to bear arms, the freedoms which are abused uh, tend to get lost. If, if we can't handle that freedom, then... Uh, then it needs to be modified, and you know, God will see to it that it's modified at some point. And um, and you know, it's like we had the we used to have the the freedom to hold slavery, to hold slaves in the South, and we abused that freedom, and uh, and it you know it was taken away, which is a good thing. I think um, I think that a modest Gun laws like are being proposed are are entirely appropriate, and um, you know the as to the 18 year olds. I mean, it's sort of a known thing that 18 year old young men are not the most uh, not the most mature and and um, careful thinking uh in the world and so you know i don't have a problem with uh, with that i'll just leave it at that thank you thank you sam i mean that, that i would imagine a lot of people hold that position um but when you look at uh 5a the language in 5a the uh of the um of the constitution 5a says nor be deprived of life liberty or property without due process of the law 14a says no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges of communities or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of the law. So there is, um, to, to me, there's some constitutional argument about equal protection, due process. Um, I get this Sam feels a certain way. I feel a certain way. Ref feels a certain way. I've never, well, I say I never, that's fundamentally dishonest. I have allowed myself to let feelings get the best of me, um, either the Second Amendment and the Constitution mean something or it doesn't. And I understand um, the the living, breathing constitutionalist. I understand those who believe that if um, 
if if the framers and founders had got together today in a Marriott or a Hilton property, they'd probably come up with a different sort of constitution. Um, and I think they've given us the right to amend it. Um, the Second Amendment says shall not be infringed upon. This is an infringement. I mean, it's legislatively uh, done. I mean, it's done by the rule of law. Um, the senators that we elect, we had a debate yesterday about democracy and representative republic. Um, this is a republic in action. Um, we elected Lindsey Graham. Uh, we've had people, I'd never vote for him again. He is our U.S. senator. I mean, he's duly sworn to be our representative in that uh, very cerebral body. That's the way the system works. The counter argument would be, you know, the Senate doesn't have a right to violate the Constitution. The Constitution affords me these rights. The Constitution protects me from a from an intrusive or abusive or overreaching government. I mean, that's always the, the notion or, or the argument I'd make. It doesn't matter whether I like Lindsey Graham or not. It doesn't matter whether I agree with what he does or not. Is what he did constitutional or not? And when you look at 5A and 14A, when they're treating 18, 19, and 20-year-olds differently than they do 21 and older, I think there's a reason to believe that you're not allowing those people due process of the law or equal protection of the law. But once again, I'm not Jonathan Turley. I'm not Andrew McCarthy. I'm not as versed as some of those folks are is uh, to what violates the Constitution and what does not. And I certainly understand and I respect Sam for candidly and openly saying that's the way he feels. But our feelings have to be in concert or balanced with what the Constitution says. Either the Constitution means something or it doesn't. And if it doesn't, let's just say it doesn't. Let's say we don't like the old rules. We don't like the way the framers, um, you know, uh, thought through the way government related to its people and people related to its government. But but up until today, it has been the document that sets, you know, where our government goes in relation to this eternal and perpetual friction between government and the people it governs over. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. You know, the argument I'd make is the reason the Constitution exists. And, and I mean, it's easy to get caught up in your feelings. I mean, we know what happened in Uvalde. It breaks all of our heart. We emotionally react. We become a little bit impractical. Um, it's, it's, we, we, I don't want to say we, we've desensitized ourselves to violence because we're not, but we see kids involved in that. I mean, it, it makes you want to do something, right? I mean, it makes you want to do something. We can't sit idly by and let that happen again. We must do something. But the Constitution is there to stop us from just doing something because our emotions say we should. I mean, either you believe in the Constitution or you don't. You believe in due process or you don't. You believe in equal protection or you don't. And and I think the the thoughtful voter is someone who understands the ballots, that, that my feelings have to be in concert with the Constitution. Now, now, once again, liberal Democrats in America today probably won't say this, but they don't believe in due process. They don't believe in equal protection. They don't believe in the Constitution. They can't. I mean, they can't stand for those things and believe that government should solve all the ills of the world, no matter how unconstitutional or lacking of a statutory climate. You can't believe what they believe. And I'm not saying Sam. I think Sam is genuine. I think Sam is sincere. I think Sam is wrong. Because I think when you treat 18, 19, and 20-year-olds differently than you do 21-year-olds and older, you're in violation of their equal protection and their due process. And I think the Constitution is there to keep us from governing ourselves based on what our emotions are today or tomorrow, what 
political wind may blow one direction or another. Let's go to the phone. Here's Jim in Florence. Morning, Jim. Hey, good morning, guys. Um, does, Ken, does the Constitution say that we have the right to bear arms and unless Sam feels a certain way? No. Does, does it, well, to go further, to go deeper, does it say we have the right to bear arms unless 80% of people polled by Democrats feel a certain way? No. We're, we're not a democracy, and and the reason we're not, I mean, we use democratic methods, but we're not a democracy because our founders understood that mob rule um, was, was obviously a problem, and democracy is nothing more than mob rule. But it's, I think we ought to call these gun grabbers what they are. I've said it before. I'll say it again. They're racist elitists. Um, it's mighty funny that the lady on the view goes on there and says um, they're going to pass gun control when when blacks start buying guns. Well, mighty funny that right now the largest or the fastest growing demographic, however you want to word it, of gun buyers are African Americans. So the Democrats are going after the guns while our our, our black neighbors are buying more guns. So who's the real racist? It's the Democrats. It's anybody that pushes gun control legislation. Um, but one last point on the Evaldi thing, Ken. That, the Evaldi school district, whatever the name of it is, but that school district has their own police department. So that means that police chief was picked by the school superintendent. That means this whole pro- – who was the commander who made the bad call? So that means – this wasn't a law enforcement problem, Ken. This was another failure by our school system, by our government schools, um, to protect children. Um, because I'm sure that police chief, who was an abject failure, just awful person in the moment, he he was a, a he was part of the system, and I'm sure he wasn't picked because he was a great leader. He was a great cop. He was probably picked because he checked some boxes some feel-good boxes for the school district to prop him up and say, hey, look who we got as our police chief. Um, and he was a great pick until the until that moment. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Jim. Appreciate it. I want to go to Jim's original thought, um, and, I, and I mean this sincerely. Um, stew on this for a second. What are you willing to support that restricts guns from being in the hands of bad people? I mean, help help us understand that. I mean, if you're a Second Amendment absolutist and you believe that that right shall not be infringed upon, um, but but I think common sense and reasonable people can say that bad people don't need guns. I mean, somebody who has a gun and and has a willingness to engage in violence against another human being, um, that is an honorable goal. I mean, that that's an admirable world to try and live in. Um, uh, how do we get there without some sort of restriction to the Second Amendment? I mean, I've got some ideas. I think the the first thing you do is keep violent offenders in jail. Talking about statistics, and we're famous for you know quoting statistics here. One um, percent of all murders in America last year were committed by someone with an assault rifle, semi-automatic weapon. Let's say that semi-automatic weapon. One uh, percent of all the murders, homicides in America were committed with that sort of weapon. 83% of all homicide murders in America last year were committed by someone who'd already been charged with a violent crime, including a gun. So if someone has already been um, 
If someone has already committed a violent crime that included a gun, what makes you think they won't do it again? We're, we're, we're basically painting, you talk about painting with a broad brush a lot here. Very few people in America today will ever own a gun with the intent to hurt another human being. But you're going to apply those rules across the board to everybody. And I've always felt that's the worst. I mean, that, that's the worst of America. That, that we, we, we try to solve the, I mean, the, the LG, how many transgenders are there in America? But, but I can lose my job because I identified somebody by the wrong pronoun. I mean, that's happening in America today, guys. And a lot of conservatives believe that red flag laws will eventually end up, to round, end up in roundup teams. And some of these liberal states will have roundup teams. And they'll go to the probate court and they'll say, hey, anybody on your list today? Anybody we need to go see today? Don't call me crazy, guys, because we live in a world now where kids are being told, you know, don't call a man a man, don't call a woman a woman. Let them decide uh, what gender identity they wish to be today, tomorrow, the next. So when you say, well, Ken's talking this crazy talk, this outlandish, I mean, this never happens in America. Of course it does. It absolutely happens in America. So, so when I say that my concern with red flag laws is they end up with roundup teams and some of these real liberal states and roundup teams go to the probate judge. I say probate judge that is, is administering or responsible for administering some of this red flag legislation. The roundup team goes to the probate judge. Who you got on the list today? I mean, do you not believe that there are gun um, activists that will do that? Of course they will. Absolutely they will. And I, I, what does it take to convince average Americans that your federal government is not to be trusted? It does not have your best interest at heart. It never has. And the only group that seemed to be beginning to realize that is the America First conservative Republican. I mean, that seems to be the only activist group in the American bubble of politics that, that is willing to say, I don't trust my government. I mean, I simply do not. Um, they've lost. And here's what happens. When, when institutions begin to fail, you have political chaos. Donald Trump gets elected. You know, um, you, you have a, a riot on January 6th. You, you have a lot of these things that were normally kind of on the fringes. That They were outliers. They become far more mainstream. Um, we're heading there. I mean, I don't know when we get there. I don't know what there looks like, but we're heading there. And I think you push the envelope. Lindsey Graham certainly has a right to vote the way he chooses to vote. Jim said it. We had a debate. Yeah, we're not a democracy. We don't rule by mob. Um, the public doesn't always get its way. But, but the, the representative republic, the, the office holder that we send on our behalf, has an obligation to adhere to the Constitution. And when they do not, the public has a right to challenge the decision made by the legislative body. Somebody texted me a second ago and said, this is the way it's supposed to work. The legislative body decides in majority, 60 votes to break the filibuster, and then they advance legislation. Is the legislation constitutional or not? That's why we have a judiciary. So, so when Amy Coney Barrett looks at red flag, uh, red flag legislation and says, is it in concert with the Constitution? And we've read 5A and 14A. Um, are 18, 19, and 20-year-olds being um, allowed their due process and equal protection or not? I mean, that, that's kind of the co-equal branches of government and the way this works. But you can't just say, because what happened in Uvalde makes me feel like we need to do something fundamentally different. We can't govern by our feelings. We live our lives by feelings, and we screw it up when we do. 
I mean, if we if we live as practical people, we normally make pretty wise decisions. If we live as you know, um, kind of, um, I mean, we're not Vulcans, but if we live as emotional creatures, guess what? We're, we're, we're back and forth. We're like a yo-yo. We're up and we're down. We're up and we're down. Uh, we're sideways. We're this way. We're that. We believe this one day and that one. That's the reason we instituted a charter called the Constitution that has to be uh, that we've obligated our government to. Now, if we don't like it, guess what the founders did? They gave us the ability to amend it. But, but they have an obligation to adhere to the Constitution. Let's go to the phone. Here's Matt in Florence. Hello, Matt. Hey, guys. The problem is a lot of people have gotten a little bit too soft, a little bit too comfortable. I carry a gun everywhere I go. I don't act like I'm Billy Badass or, you know, flaunt it or anything like that. But I, I've done this for so long in my life that it just feels perfectly normal to me. And if, if the government takes away my gun just because I'm a little bit too right-wing, that doesn't make me any safer. I think people just need to they need to step out of that that little safe bubble and start protecting themselves. The Second Amendment is designed for them to do that. The government can't protect us. I mean, I I appreciate law enforcement, but they're not going to be with me 24/7. Nobody's going to be with you 24/7. Why not use the privileges that we have rather than begging somebody else to look after us? I mean, We've come a long way since the trailblazing people that showed up in the Americas in 1776. It's almost disgraceful. That's just my opinion on it. Thank you, Matt. Appreciate it. Here's what I'll say in closing in this segment. We've had guns in our country for a long, long, long time. I mean, there's almost a um, Scott Coppin and I were talking one day about America's infatuation with the gun. I mean, we settled the West. The gun's part of that. The gun's part of our uh, heritage. I mean, we pass down weapons. I mean, shotguns and rifles and, and handguns are passed down uh, to kids and grandkids and great-grandkids. And there, there's such a respect that gun owners have for the right to be a gun owner. I mean, gun ownership is a responsibility. Um why did we go a hundred years with very little school shootings, very little serious? I mean, um, random supermarket um, murders. I mean, we, we didn't have a lot of that. We had some, but very, very seldom did we have that. Uh, is the problem in the country today guns, or is it moral decay? Is it moral depravity? Is it evil? Uh, what are we doing to address evil? What, what are we doing to address moral decay? And, and, and human depravity. I mean, what, what do we, you know, we, we've, we've allowed, well, I say we, you have it and I have it. But a lot of Americans have allowed themselves to be convinced that the debate needs to be about the gun. The debate does not need to be about the gun. The debate needs to be about why have we had such a history of owning guns and very seldom did we have these sorts of things. And in the last 30 or 40 years, they seem to be far more frequent. I mean, we've got guns. We've had guns. All of a sudden, now these things are more frequent. Why? Why? What's, it's, what's it's, different? What sure, but it, well, you know what's different. Culture's different. Society's different. I mean, there are a lot of things different. Uh, you may believe video games contribute to this, and I may believe that it's just human depravity. You know, the the, the moving of the you know the well, what is the center of America when it comes to. I mean, Rev, we, we live in a country that allows, or half of America, I doubt it's half, maybe 35% of Americans believe it's okay for an eight-year-old eight year old to enter into a medical contract to have their sex changed. I mean, there are people who genuinely believe that. We, we believe it's okay to let drag queens go to public education and, and, and you know, um, teach kids 
about, you know, gender fluidity and, 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 you know, I was born the wrong sex. God made a mistake. I mean, really? I mean, we, we're going to focus on the gun and not those sorts of issues that, that to me suggest strongly that this country's in moral decline. Let, let's, you know, what, what does the Constitution say about moral decline? Well, it says, you know, it works for good and righteous people. Once the good and righteous people aren't so good, aren't so righteous, probably don't work so damn well. Let's take a break. Back in a minute. Should should a cross-dresser be allowed to own a gun? <laughs> Whoa. Should, wow. I mean, seriously, should someone contemplating sex change be allowed to own a gun? I mean, is there some mental illness? Is there some um, insecurity? Is there something kicking um, mentally or emotionally with that person that puts them on a list that says you can't own a gun? I mean, you know, I get the hayseeds and hillbillies and cowboys. I mean, I would fall in that category. I get that. I mean, those are the dangerous ones. You got to watch those hayseeds, hillbillies, and cowboys. They get a gun. They'll take matters into their own hands. What about a cross-dresser? What about someone contemplating a sex change? Should that person be on a list uh, of being a little bit mentally unstable or unstable and disallowed to own a gun? Uh, The last thing I want is someone contemplating a sex change, um, owning a gun, a firearm. That makes me nervous. I'm real nervous when a cross-dresser pulls up his hairy legs and, and a dress and a gun is in a holster. Mm. You know, hairy legs, a dress, and a holster with a gun. That makes me real nervous as a hayseed hillbilly <laughs> and cowboy. Let's go to the phone. Wow. Uh, here's Brian in Florence. Look, Brian. Hey, Ken, out of coincidence, what you're bringing up, um, people who are, are transvestite do have a suicide rate that's 42% higher than the rest of the population. Sure it is. That no question about call, it. But that's not the reason I called, but, you know, we have to stop looking at this from a, from the standpoint of the gun or the crime. It's a constitutional right for us to have the, uh, a gun. It's, it's, there's, it's clear wording. There's no reason for a legislature to be able to pass a law, and we just completely uh, forego the constitutional process to, to amend a law. And I think people are getting distracted by what, what's happening in these emotional type events. And, and you, you can't get emotional about that because you cannot violate the Constitution in that matter. The other thing, too, is that, you know, changing the age from 18 to 21, if memory serves me correct, I believe 18 to 21-year-old black males are some of the, have some of the highest death rate from gang violence than anybody in the country. Shouldn't they be the ones that have a gun to protect themselves? Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. When he said a second ago, the caller said, we can't get emotional about this. You can't not get emotional. You, I mean, seriously, we're not Vulcans. You can't not get emotional. How many of you got emotional when you saw the story of Uvalde or Buffalo in the grocery of store? Course you did. I mean, all of us have human compassion. I mean, Sam has it. I have it. Liberal Democrats have it. Conservative Republicans have it. Everybody has the capacity to care for their fellow man. I don't know that we have the capacity to not be emotional, that the Constitution is there to stop us from governing because our emotions say in the moment, this is how we should govern. Once again, is transgenderism a mental illness? Does that get you put on a on a list? I mean, this is what we're talking about, guys, and, and, and that's why our founders were so adamant sure about these could, could argue constitutional rights. They could argue that that's a red flag. Very easily argue that's a red flag. But those sorts of arguments don't work because this is intended, once again, for the hillbillies, hayseeds, and cowboys, people like you and I. Let's go to the phone. John and Lamar. Hello, John. Hey, good morning, guys. Um, 
Ken, I think you're right about that. Um, I think the gun, it's not a gun problem in the first place. Uh, I mean, I got my first gun when I was five years old. It was the Marlin 25. Six years old, I got a 410. Still got them. They have never jumped off the porch out of the cabinet and shot anybody. They never went hunting by herself. You know, it's a people problem. And, you know, until we address the mental issues of these people, and, you know, as far as background checks go, I think I think that they should be concerned with the background checks as far as the mental health of people get. But on the other hand, the whole problem, every problem we have today is a government problem. Government has caused it. The people in our government today that govern us are so far out of touch with the real world, they're held up in their little little compounds and stuff like that and guarded by armed guards and fences and walls and stuff like that, but you tell everybody else how to live. How the hell do they do that? They can't do that. They have no concept of what they're talking about. No concept whatsoever. And until we get rid of them and abolish the government and start all over again, we're just we're, we're going down the team, fan, and that's, that's, that's it. You know, we're just going to have to fend for ourselves. So I'll talk to you all later, man. Have a good one. Thank you, John. Appreciate that. John said they're out of touch. I've got a real simple uh, reason they're out of touch. They're too damn old. I mean, these people making these decisions on our behalf, the leadership of the Senate, the leadership of the House, the president, these people are 80 and older. That's not the people that need to be making laws that a nation lives under for the next 25, 30, 35. It's absurd. The absurdity of us allowing ourselves to be governed by 80-year-olds, we get exactly what we deserve. With all due respect to 80-year-olds, back in a minute. 843-661-0937. When you read the 80-page document, I've not read it. I'm not going to profess that I've read it. I hit some of the high points. I've read somewhat of a summary. Um, it, it's, you know, it creates additional penalties for straw purchases, um, gun sellers, or requires more gun sellers to register as federally licensed firearm dealers. There's this loophole called the boyfriend loophole. Um it closes that loophole, uh, prohibits gun access for people convicted of domestic abuse against an intimate partner. But, but in essence, it's gun restriction. I mean, that's what it is. I mean, the senators are voting for a law that restricts the right for you to own a gun. I mean, we can debate whether it's good red restriction, bad restriction, um, constitutionally granted restriction, or constitutionally violating or violating your constitutional right. Um, I mean, that debate will be, I mean, it'll ensue. And Mike Lee acts like, he didn't have a lot of time to review the legislation. It'll be very interesting how many Republican senators. I mean, the Democrats, it's a no-brainer. I mean, they don't like the Constitution. They don't like the Second Amendment. They don't like the right that people are empowered. I mean, that's fundamentally the, the problem with liberals in America today is the Constitution affords liberties and freedoms, grants those liberties and freedoms, protect your right from uh, an oppressive government. Liberals don't like that. They like government to be in charge. Now, my my fundamental belief, and, and once again, we'll get into the 80-page document and uh, what's good about it, what's bad about it. It's gun restriction legislation, no doubt. But it gives government more authority. I mean, that's where I've always been apprehensive. Anything that gives the government more authority, I'm inclined to be against. I mean, that's just my nature. Um, call me a Jeffersonian rabble-rouser if you'd like. But I am deeply, deeply suspicious of anything the government, uh, any time the government wants to be more in charge of X, Y, or Z. 
fundamentally, that's where I land. I don't want anybody to get killed. I don't want any bad person on a gun, but I don't trust the government to solve those problems. I believe society in general, bound to the Constitution, have a better chance of addressing those ills than government programs, government bureaucrats, um, government intervention. That's just historically and steadfastly where I stand, and I guess that's what makes me, uh, by nature, a conservative Republican. I'd be for taking some laws off the books somewhere, somehow. Well, I mean, you're you're entrusting the government. I mean, when you pass this legislation, uh, you're basically saying, I trust the government to do right. How many of you trust the government to restrain, contain itself, and to uh, find some sort of concert and balance with whatever law comes from whatever senator at whatever time? Let's go to the phone. Here's Rodney in Florence. Good morning, Rodney. Hey, guys, love the show. I just got a couple few things. I'll make it quick. If an 18-year-old kid is old enough to be dropped in a combat zone, he's an adult. And the other thing is I had a high-impact injury, and I'm in, you know, kind of on my back in the bed, but I hadn't smiled or grinned or laughed. Ken, until you talked about that hairy-legged transgender woman with a gun. <laughs> I still have tears on my face. Well, I'm glad I'm, I'm glad we made you laugh, Rodney. Thank you for um for your call. But I'm being serious. I mean, is crossed is is transgenderism a mental illness? I mean, is someone who is um is a transvestite? I mean, is that someone? that you put on a list. Is that a red flag? There you go. Let's use their terminology. Mm-hmm. Is that a red flag? Um, is an 18 year old debating whether to have a sex change? I mean, is that a, is that someone? No, it's only the country boys at the hunting club, you know, that become so acceptance of, of gun violence, shooting the deer, you know, slaughtering the hogs, you know, the hayseeds, the hillbillies and the cowboys, the deplorables, the unwashed. I mean, that's what this is intended for, but is a transvestite, going to be allowed to own a gun, or are they going to be put on a, a red list? In other words, um, you know, the cowboy, the hayseed, and the transvestite, is this, you know, is this the people we're targeting to make sure they don't own um, guns? Got to be careful here, guys, putting government in charge and giving government discretion. Government, to me, personally, has not ever exhibited the ability to restrain or contain itself. And why do we believe it's going to be fundamentally different here? I'll, t- I'll say this to Lindsey. If Lindsey were here, I'd say, Lindsey, I hear you. I'm sorry. I'd say, Senator Graham, I'd be respectful. Senator Graham, I hear you. And I think you're genuine in your intent. I think you intend and you believe that your intent is going to help save lives. I accept that. I mean, I, I don't believe you're doing this for the hell of it. I mean, I think sincerely you believe that that you have an obligation to keep people safe. This is one of the ways to keep more people I'm um, safer. But do you really trust the government? I mean, are we going to put, I mean, are we going to, in, I mean, the government pretty much screws up everything they touch now. And we're going to give them more to do? I mean, in other words, how many times has this happened and we find out they fell through the cracks? I mean, how many cracks are there? If they fell through the cracks, doesn't that mean there's legislation already on the books? Doesn't that mean there's already, um, you know, uh, some reasonable restriction that applies to the Second Amendment? I mean, how many times have we heard this? This person fell through the cracks. What are the cracks? I mean, if we, do, do we need more legislation if we can't enforce the current legislation? 
I mean, if the bureaucrats in charge of enforcing this are allowing so many people to fall through the cracks, what do we do? I mean, we need more cracks for more people to fall through. I mean, the government is incompetent, and they're incompetent because there are no metrics or measures of which we hold people accountable. Let's go to the phone. Joe in Hartsville, you are next, and you're on the air. Yeah, good morning, guys. You know, the, the Democrats play the long game, and that's all this is. They don't care that the Supreme Court shot down a red flag law a little over a year ago, 9-0. to zero. I mean, that's how unconstitutional it is. But they played the long game. You're talking about falling through the cracks. Well, they've been coddling these 15, 16, 17-year-old criminals and sealing their records because they're minors. And then when you find out after they turn 18, you know, they got a history of violence and all that. Oh, we didn't know that. Well, you created the problem to start with by sealing their records. The Democrats are going to do what they want to do. You know, everybody forgets about when they burnt that church across from the the, the White House and they had to lock the White House down and put Trump in a bunker and no one was prosecuted. You know, that, that wasn't a, a riot, an insurrection or attempt to overthrow the government. You know, every election, the Democrats opposed the Republican nominee. They hated Reagan. Even the Bushes hated Reagan. But I'm going to tell you, I'm going to start a a campaign right now. There'll be four years before Lindsey Graham is up for re-election in 26, I think. I'm going to start a re-election campaign. Mike Rickenbaugh. I know he's just gotten to send. He'll have four years to work. I want to get his name out there, and I'd love to run Mike Rickenbaugh against Lindsey Graham. Y'all have a good one. Thank you. Appreciate that, Joe. Um, there you go, Mike. There, there's a rousing endorsement mm-hmm. of you. I think you've been in Senate 17 days. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I told you earlier. Okay, full disclosure. You ready? Um, I guess Joe's a brilliant man. Uh, what are you laughing at? I mean, say the conversation you and I had at about 6.30 this morning when we are talking about gun legislation. Um, I said we're going to keep this between ourselves, uh, but but go ahead. I mean, we we shoot our listeners straight. They're part of the family. Um, We speak to one another in that kind of way. Carl said it earlier. You know, I disagree with you, but I love the process. And, you know, I, you know, my kids don't like me all the time. I don't like my kids all the time, but we're on the same team. They know it. I know it. We're pulling together. So, so, so in, in to our listeners, you and I had a conversation at about six 30 or so this morning. Remember what it was about? We, we had, when, we when had when a bunch I, this morning. Well, I mean, when, when Joe was talking about Mike Rickenbaugh running for the Senate people and, running for Senate. And, and, and what did I tell you early, early this morning that I thought Mike would be. One of the well, when I said maybe I didn't tell you that you didn't when I well I actually sent Mike a text, <laughs> but but you talked on the air well, I mean, about it. <laughs> I, I said to me there are a couple of people that Mike doesn't want That's this, but I don't you know I, I'm not in the Senate. I don't want to get him to vote for me and me vote for him. Mike and our friends and he knows we're friends. Um, the 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 sort of candidate it takes to beat Lindsey is a candidate that doesn't have a long history of being in politics. I mean, that, I'm serious. I mean, that, that was the advantage I had when I ran for lieutenant governor. Uh, the biggest advantage I had 
as a political candidate was not registering to vote until the age of 40. I was not influenced nor tainted. by. I mean, I, I was Johnny come lately, and I didn't uh, profess to be anything other than that. I mean, I just got there, didn't know my butt from third base, had no idea what I was doing. People liked that because they, whether it was true or not, they anticipated that you not being influenced or affected by the years and years and years of favors taken and favors given. And if you do it long enough, the public gets very suspicious of who you are and what you're about. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I, I think there are two or three people out there that have a chance to run against Lindsay. And once again, I'm not trying to drum up a, uh, you know, you're the guys out there saying you're frustrated with Lindsay, and I've heard it over and over and over again. And all I can tell you is this. Every time I hear that, Lindsay wins in a landslide. Um, so so the, the very people who say, I don't like Lindsay, I'll never vote for Lindsay again. Lindsay keeps winning elections in a very red state. For someone who has been kind of gone to the reputation of being the, the prototypical rhino, this ain't a rhino state. I mean, the Republican primary voter is not rhino-ish. And they keep electing Lindsey Graham over and over and over again because he's a good politician and he knows what he's doing. Um, I'm not for nor against Lindsey in this particular circumstance and situation. I think Lindsey's sincere. Why hasn't he drawn the right primary challenger that could that could actually beat him? I wonder why that well, is. Well, I mean, it, it, it's a rare bird. I mean, it's a rare bird that can raise $5 million and has name ID and can run statewide. I mean, that, that's a limited pool. It's a little bit like in college football recruiting. There are a lot of three stars. There are fewer four stars. There's only a few five stars. I mean, there ain't but a handful of five stars, and it would take a five star. Um, there, there are a lot of checks and boxes you got to be able to. And when I say check in boxes, I'm not talking about go to Harvard, you know, graduate from the Naval Academy. I mean, it's not that sort of thing. I think, I think, I really believe the rank and file Republican voter today have disdain. For that, I believe it hurts you more to have uh, that sort of resume. And I think it helps you to be a little bit unconventional, out of the um, uh, against the grain, uh, you know, a little bit abnormal when it comes to w- what is your resume, what are your prerequisites, what sort of um of candidate would you be? Um, yeah, I think there are two or three people uh, in our state right now that have not been around long enough to to allow themselves to be labeled one thing or another. And, uh, I mean, Nikki Haley. I mean, Nikki Haley would be one. I mean, Nikki Haley would be the, the, the example of someone. Now, I mean, I don't have any idea what sort of relationship she and Lindsey have. Um, I, don't have I don't have any idea if Nikki's interested to get back into, into state politics. It's federal politics, but she's doing statewide in South Carolina. I got to believe that Nikki considers the presidency. I got to believe that Nikki would consider being someone's running mate on a national ticket, I mean, who wouldn't? I mean, anybody would. Uh, you want to be vice president? Nah, I don't do that. I'm going <laughs> to football games this fall. I mean, anybody with political ambition would embrace that. So, so yeah, I mean, you know, Lindsey's done a good job of strategically positioning himself to warn off or fend off any challenge that comes his way. But once again, Rev, that's not 100 people. That's not even 50 people. That's probably not even 10. I'm sure it's not 10 people. I mean, it's probably a universe of five. And, you know, who are those five people? I think I know. Uh, but I'm not sure. You know, my five may be different than Robert Cahaley's five. Robert Cahaley's five may be different than Will Folks's five. And these are people I'm talking about who kind of live the life of 
political insiderism and political punditry and keeping up with the, um, you know, the statewide, right? I'll, I'll tell you something about Nikki. A lot of people don't know. Um, her approvals nationwide are much better than in the state of South Carolina. That seems odd, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, you would expect Interesting. The, the favorite son, but I mean, she has crossed America first. I mean, she said some derogatory things about Trump. Uh, now, she served in the Trump administration. I think she served admirably. But but since then, she has tried to be a little bit America first and a little bit establishment because America first is not a very lucrative path. I mean, if you're a politician or former politician, I'm going to work for America first. Well, guess what? Raytheon isn't going to hire you. Pfizer's not going to hire you. But if you kind of, you know, uh, make camp in the establishment quarters, uh, a lot of lucrative opportunities come along. And I think Nikki wanted to make some money. So she kind of tried to be both. And I think she's paid a price in South Carolina for trying to be both. So, so yeah, I think, I think Governor Haley would be a more formidable nationwide candidate than she would in South Carolina. But, but to, to Joe's point, beating an incumbent senator with $5 million ain't an easy lift. I don't care how mad. You think he's made the voting block. Now, it's not impossible. Tom Rice, you know, I mean, to me, made the fatal mistake of voting to impeach President Trump. We said it the day he did it. I mean, the day Tom Rice made that vote, the next morning we came over the airways and I said, we'll have another senator. I mean, excuse me, another congressman. I mean, Tom Rice is not going back to Washington because that's a bridge too far. Is gun legislation a bridge too far? I don't know. What was amnesty on immigration a bridge too far? I know the answer to that. No. Remember the gang? What was the gang of gang eight? Of gang eight. of yeah, the gang of eight, and you know, um, I think they called him, um, you know, Amnesty Graham, or you know, uh, Gramnesty. Gramnesty. There you go. Remember that? Yeah. Um, man, everybody said Lindsey's going down this time. Lindsey Graham will never win the Senate race in South Carolina. Got about sixty-two percent of the vote, but he had inferior candidates, not good candidates who couldn't raise money. Um, it would be very intriguing for South Carolina voters, Republican primary voters, to see Senator Graham and a quality candidate who was well-funded. I mean, you talk about high-stakes uh, politics, yeah, that's a big deal. If, if all of a sudden a well-funded, very respected, smart, competent woman or man decided to run against Senator Graham, yeah, I mean, that, that would be, you know, the epicenter of what South Carolina politics is about and embodies. Let's take a break. We'll be back on the other side. 843-661-0937 is our number. So do you think that you, you know, you've told the story many times on the air about not registering to vote until you were 40. Uh, you got elected to county council and then you ran for lieutenant governor just a few years later. And the fact that that, that was your path, that was an advantage that helped you get elected lieutenant governor. Absolutely. I mean, it would have been a disadvantage in normal political times these aren't normal political times. When I would say to an audience, I didn't register to vote until I was 40, and I'm 46 now. I mean, at the time I was 46 years old, I think a lot of voters said, ah, that's kind of the guy I want. I mean, he's not tainted, not stained, not, not, um, he's a bit, uh, new to this, probably doesn't know how it exactly, that's kind of the guy I want. Yeah. I mean, I think there is a, an appreciation. I'll give you an example. So I believe that the, the future star of the Republican Party is J.D. Vance. J.D. Vance has never been elected office. J.D. Vance could give a speech at Ron DeSantis' acceptance when, when, when the RNC, when the Republican National Committee have their convention, 
And the convention includes speakers from all over the place. That's kind of where Peter Thiel made his splash. Right. You know, Thiel introduced yeah. himself to American Republican primary at voters Trump's at Trump's nomination. So when DeSantis, I'm being hypothetical here, when DeSantis accepts in 24 the Republican nomination, J.D. Vance could give a speech the night before, like Barack Obama gave at the DNC, that just puts him on a rocket ship. J.D. Vance gave that speech 20 years ago. People say, don't trust him. Don't know him enough. Well, how would he vote? Uh, no, he didn't serve. He didn't do this. He didn't do that. Now, it's almost like it's 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 been, I mean, it's not just an evolution, that there's been a, just an absolute swap. Um, I'd rather have the guy that's never been in office. I'd rather have the guy that's not tainted by the process. I'd rather have the guy that didn't page your clerk for a Supreme Court justice. Um, and, and once again, in traditional American politics, you had about eight checks and boxes you better have. Um, when I said I'm a college dropout from a town with no stoplight, but I run a business every day of my adult life, the voters in the Republican primary were like, okay, I want to hear a little more about him. Um, normally if you say I'm 46, didn't register to vote last 40, I've never held office except at the county level. They'd scratch your name off a list in a nanosecond. Uh, you don't fit the criteria. Mr. Art, yeah, here, here's your list. Go back and do these things and then talk to us. Come in see years. us again. Come see us um, later. When you've joined the Guard, when you've um, clerked to the Senate, when you graduated law school, then come see us. And I think voters are so put off by that. I'd love to run against a candidate. In fact, I did. I ran against a guy named Ashley Cooper from Charleston, for God's sake. I mean, <laughs> really. And, and, and I mean, you know, we, we took advantage of it being a red state. But, I, I, yeah, I mean, I think there are a lot of reasons to like guys and ladies who aren't as entrenched in the political process as we've historically um, wanted them to be. Hey, speaking of, um, of, of features or speaking of um, entrenchment, um, there was a guy that was with us for a long time. Freehold's doing a great job today, but before Freehold was our good buddy, um, Cato. With Bray's on the big winning streak, you and I and Cato were sharing some text. Yep. And, I, and we hear he may be, I mean, he's in a job. He's jet-setting now around the world. Um, but he <laughs> happens to be um, near, we think, right, Ref? We, we're told. We, we're, we're getting we reports. Have on, we have it on good authority. Yeah, we have it on good authority. We have reporting on credible sources that Cato may be in our neck of the woods and listening to the show this morning. So good morning, sir. Um, hope you're doing well. <laughs> With all due respect to Mike, we miss you. Wish, wish I had both of you guys, Freehold and um and uh, oh, and Cato with us. Uh, the resident Bible thumper <laughs> and Freehold would make um, great acquaintances if indeed they were um, in the studio, in the producer studio together. So good morning, and I uh, hope everything is going Cato's way. Is somebody Steve. on the phone? Yep, Steve in Florence. Hello, Steve. Good morning, guys. Good morning. A uh, couple, couple of um, just scattered and random thoughts based on things I've heard you and the caller say this this morning about um, about Evaldi. First of all, I, I think one of the lessons there is for us, for regular people, is if the cops aren't going to come in and save a bunch of babies, they sure aren't going to come save us. So really, we're we're on our own, and we need to be prepared to to, to deal with whatever comes our way and not rely on somebody else. Um, I think basically it's a spiritual issue uh, that what was demonstrated in, in Uvalde and um, maybe a social issue. I mean, we're, we're Amer Americans for goodness sake. We, since when did we start letting people in authority tell us what to do, even when it was not best interest, much, much less 
harmful to other people. We, 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 this country was founded on people saying to positions and authority, screw you. I think, um, I think if the founding fathers would come back today and see what we've let happen to this republic, they'd say, you know, it's time to go kinetic. You know, we, uh, we need to fix this, and that's the only, only way left to us. Um, about 18-year-olds, I used to be a big proponent of the argument that if you can go die for your country in combat, then you sure ought to be allowed to own a firearm of your choice back home. But, you know, it occurred to me that 18-year-olds in the Army, if 18-year-olds outside the Army are like them, they're dumb as dirt, and they're only allowed to carry a firearm under supervision. So the analogy would be, if you want to have an 18, if you want to have an AR-15, 18-year-old, then you can have it as long as there's a 20-year-old supervisor with you every step of the way, telling you what to do and telling you what not to do, because that's that's really a more accurate picture. I, uh, yeah, I think the uh, 18-year-old thing is. I still can't bring myself to say, okay, 18-year-olds can't have guns. I just throw that out there as, as a talking point because shall not be infringed means exactly what what it sounds like. So, you know, the um, the thing about what would we do if we found ourselves in a position of authority? Ken, I heard you say, you know, I, you weren't there. And, and I respect that. I wasn't there either. We oftentimes have students in our classes at Paladin Training say, well, you know, you'll never know what you're going to do until you until you get there. And to a certain extent, that's true. But my response to that is always, and our instructors are going to say this, then you need to train until it's part of your personality, doing the right thing, going to the sound of gunfire as part of your personality, train until that happens. So I know that's a bunch of hopscotch stuff I just throw out there. And um, you guys have a good day enjoying the show. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that a lot. Um, I believe that at times in celebrating our Second Amendment right, we're, we're not as thorough as we should be uh, about the responsibility of gun ownership. I mean, it's an incredible responsibility. Um, you know, w- when you own a gun and you decide to carry that weapon and there's a confrontation with someone uh, what are you willing to do? I mean, I, I, I think there's a seriousness about this issue that every now and then we become a bit nonchalant about. Steve kind of reminds us of that. Um, gun ownership is a right. There is no question about that, but it is an enormous responsibility. Um, the responsibility to be free is enormous. I don't know that we take it as seriously as we should. And I'm not a gun guy. I mean, I don't have a gun in every nightstand. I don't hunt. I don't fish. I played ball. My brother hunted and fished. I went off playing sports. He didn't care much for sports. I didn't care much for, for hunting or fishing. Um, I do a little fishing, uh, but but I'm not an outdoorsman by any stretch. Um, but I certainly have always respected uh, someone's right to own that gun. But, but at times I've wondered and been concerned with how much responsibility they that do they realize the responsibility it takes when you own that gun, when that gun is on you and something does happen and it requires some sort of intervention or action? Um, what did someone tell us? It might have been Mike Nunn. Uh, when you decide to put that gun on your hip, um, 
you're deciding at some point in time you may take another human life. I mean, that, that is an incredibly consequential uh, ponderance of which we all need to consider. When I get a little bit, not confused, but when I get a little bit, um, maybe confused is the right word. When I begin searching for answers about where I stand and why I stand there and what I believe in and why I believe in it, I go to my political hero, and that's Jefferson. Uh, I think Jefferson thought about American democracy or American uh, the American Republic, the American experience. Let's do with that. The American experience. I think Jefferson thought more about that than any human being in history. I mean, we've had writers, we've had politicians, we've had historians, we've had academics, we've had a lot of people make contributions to what it means to be an American. I think Thomas Jefferson thought about the American experience and experiment more than anybody ever has. I think his hands are all over what we do today, how we live today. I think Jefferson knew that times would change. Innovation and technology and science would lead mankind to very different sorts of places. And I don't think Jefferson was at all naive to that reality. I don't think Jefferson believed that cotton farming, slavery, and plantations would be America's future. I don't think Jefferson liked a lot about what the times he lived in. He accepted, he embraced some of this, and he was hypocritical. No question about it. In many ways, um, the admiration I think a lot of Americans have for Jefferson is the, the obvious the obvious inner struggle he had with things he said and things he did, things he believed in, and you know the, the political motivations of his time. But but I found two quotes. I knew they were out there, and I found both. Jefferson said in December of 1787. What country can preserve its liberties if their rulers are not warned from time to time that their people preserve the spirit of resistance? Let them take arms. I mean, that's in 1787. He also said in 1774, the law that the laws that forbid the carrying of arms are laws of such a nature. They disarm only those who are neither inclined nor determined to commit crimes. Such laws makes things worse for the assaulted and better for the assailants. They serve rather to encourage than to prevent homicides for an unarmed man may be attacked with greater confidence than an armed man. I mean, that's fairly prophetic. I mean, that's 1774. Uh, we didn't have school shootings in 1774. We didn't have, you know, the government involved in mental illness or, or juvenile delinquencies or all these other sorts of things. But, Jefferson had a lot to say. Now, some of that's quoted. I mean, I think there was a um, uh, 17th or 18th century uh, criminologist who wrote about some of these things. And, and Jefferson, as he always did, studied uh, Locke. You know, John Locke had a tremendous influence on Jefferson. I think when Jefferson speaks, he speaks from a place of uh, some life experience, but, but a lot of what he read and studied and tried to better understand and I think Jefferson embodies, now give me a chance to talk about Jefferson, you know, I'll take you up on it. I think Jefferson embodies what it meant to be an American. And I think what it means to be an American is to carefully consider why you believe what you believe. Self-governance is hard. It takes effort. It takes responsibility. It takes a willingness to try and understand why you've been blessed with these liberties and freedoms. When my daughter or two boys would whine about it's too hot or it's too this or it's too that or, or life sucks or they've got it better than I've got it, I said, you won the ovarian lottery the day you were born in America. Now, I think our nation's in decline, and I worry about where we're headed, but I wouldn't change where I am for anywhere in the world. 
And and once again, I think people like Jefferson, like Adams, like Washington, um, that they, they set a precedent, that they put forth a governing authority, and that is our Constitution and the co-equal branches, and they kind of let it roll from there. And I, you know, that's that's where I place my faith. I can't place my faith in how I feel today, how you feel today. I can't place my faith in what the poll says today or tomorrow or the next day. Um, I like to say, you know, hear this a lot. Times change. You know, the times change. Well, Bob Dylan wrote a song about that, uh, a bit prophetic. I mean, it does change. Things do change. But I think there's certain adherences that are essential to who we are, what we're about. And I think the Second Amendment is one of those. I think it's a bedrock of the American experiment. I think it's a bedrock and a right that we've got to be very careful when we start, you know, haggling around with it. Uh, let's go to the phone, then we'll take our last break, or our second to last break. John in Darlington County. Hello, John. Hey. Um, I reckon I can drive this damn dump truck and talk on his phone same time. I've, I've um kind of a new job I just took on. I've tried to call him before. I didn't know what to say, and it took too much time. I didn't know about the time limit that we had on it, and I got too long-winded and never did get my point across. But anyway, I just wanted to ask, uh, hadn't really got a, just got this job, and uh, I used to farm for a living, and I had to quit. And um, make a long story short, uh was thinking about running for something. And I know I waited too long for this time around. And I I ain't never done that before. Never have. But I just the last the last year or two have just infuriated me with all the, the things that, that me and Ken believe in and hold dear to our heart and um the way they just trashing it. And I was just wondering, um, I don't even know where to begin to to run for anything. I don't even know I don't know where to start. But um I just throw that out. Got an answer for that, I sure would like to hear it. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Um uh, I'm good at yeah, I'm good at getting elected. <laughs> And I'm good at getting thrown out of the job. So um, thank you. Appreciate but, but that. But at some point, you decided to run, and you did. I you did. were successful. I did. I mean, I, you know, I decided when I got— I mean, And I, you were mind, inspired by something that, that made you you know, think you could get in there and make a difference, right? I was a business owner that had a negotiation uh, with a government agency. And I thought I was unfairly treated and negotiated with that government agency. And my father— um, told me, and I'll never forget my dad. My dad said, you're going to lay on the couch and complain all your life or you get in the middle of it. And, and my dad, I mean, probably the best compliment he's ever given me is he said, you smart enough? I mean, my, my dad was kind of weird in the way, uh, you know, he kind of, um, you smart enough? What does that mean? I mean, you smart enough. You know, I mean, <laughs> I don't know that he knew what it meant, but it was kind of encouraging to me, you know, and um, you're smart enough. And uh, and off we went. And, um, and I, you know, I wasn't behind the wheel of a truck. But, but I, you know, my motivation to get involved in politics was, was a government agency that I felt dealt with us in, in the most one-sided fashion and un- unapologetically, you know, and, and that kind of led me down the road. And, and, I, and I'll stick to this. And I'm telling you guys, the biggest threat to our democracy is a punitive government that doesn't believe it has to be held accountable to the people it serves. I mean, in essence, that kind of is, Jefferson talked you, about. you better believe it. You better believe it. And it didn't take me long after getting in government to realize who my... Uh, political hero was 
because he wrote about those very same feelings that I had. And I, I just encourage you, if you want to know what America means, try to get your hands on as much stuff that Jefferson wrote about. But if you want to get involved in politics for someone like John, what, what would your advice be? Go, go to the local Republican Party. I mean, go, go to the local party and say, I don't know where to start. I don't know what sort of contribution I can make. Will you help me? Um, intensity, emotion, commitment is something that has to be a part of it. Um, wherever you're from, go to the next meeting of your local uh, Republican Party and just tell them, I'm here and I want to be a part of it. 843-661-0937. We'll take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. A couple of minutes left. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Linda in Pamplico. Good morning. Hey, uh, I got something in my claw about all this uh, aid going to Ukraine. Uh, I don't think it's accountable. I want to know where it's going, what they're doing. You know, it's just too far out there. And, of course, uh, I think they're using the Ukraine situation to cover up for all the sorry stuff that you know they're doing and stuff they're not doing so but um and when they send weapons they did they describe the weapon and tell all about what it does and all that that's not how you do war you go and do it so very disappointed in this administration and i got a dog in the fight my daughter's stationed in the mediterranean on an aircraft carrier but i don't know i just like some accountability Thank you, ma'am. Appreciate that, Linda. She's right. We've not paid very close attention. I mean, it's amazing what inflation will do. I mean, it dominates the debate. I mean, it dominates everything we talk about. It creates a level of uncertainty and anxiety in all of our lives. Uh, but but she's right. We don't have men and women serving in Ukraine, but we spent a bunch of money, a buttload of money, a lot of money in the name of um, arming Ukrainians to defend against um, the Russian military and you know, who's being held accountable for what? I don't have any idea. And the majority of Americans are not as concerned by that because they're paying $5 a gallon for gas. They're paying, you know, 80 bucks for $40 worth of groceries. Um, I looked at two by four studs online last night. Uh, they came down a bit, but it's still over $5. A um, little framing job I want to do. And I'm, I'm kind of waiting to see if lumber, uh, they, they're not passing along the savings yet. The lumber market has crashed. I mean, there's no doubt about it, but some of the um, some of the retailers are not passing along the savings as of yet. Got about a minute. Uh, Tony in Calhoun County. Hey, good morning, gentlemen. Um, what makes our country special is the recognition that our rights come from God. And what God gives you, no man can take away from you. And all the other countries, your rights come from government, and government can take them away. Um, if you guys are moved by Paul Harvey's If I Were the Devil speech or his, you know, so God made a farmer speech, there's a speech that's given that's not played often. And Dave Baker or Ken, you should look it up. Look up John Wayne, the Alamo, and the Republic speech. He gives a speech in there about, about the Republic, and it's, it's, it's almost as moving as Paul Harvey's, and I think you guys should play it. Thank you, Tony. Appreciate Check that. Good way to conclude our show, Rez making notes as we speak. I like when, when when there's something serious to be done, they name me after they name uh, <laughs> Baker. If there's something, you know, flippant and nonchalant, Ken can handle that, but serious things, Baker needs to take care of. Back in a minute. I hear you.